Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome back to hey, Actual hey. Podcast. We are back. Let's make sure we up and rolling everywhere. Let's see what's happening over here. Okay, it's looking good on Facebook. Just got our time YouTube stamps. is rolling. Twitches should be rolling. Okay, going official. Officially. Official live. Official. Are we official I now? We are official I. <laughs> official I podcast. Welcome, everybody. That'd be, that'd be funny. To we are officially The live stream live. podcast called Official I, and then it's off the actual I. You know? Yeah. We can do that. And then on our Instagram, it will be like the official after. Yeah. Official I, official page. This is the way. Uh, so welcome, everybody, to the stream. Looks like things are good and rolling. If you got things to say, feel free to chat them up. Try and catch you. And we'll respond. If not, we'll uh, make sure we get back to you guys. Any questions or comments, we'll get back to you on the next episode. So this is John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. One of the most profound things I've ever discovered. And uh, I'm excited to be able to share with all of you and with my great friend DJ here. We also play in a band called American Dharma. And we got a show coming up. In Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, this yes. Saturday. We're going to be going on around 4 o'clock. It's a full day festival up at Love Drafts. Love Drafts. Yes, yes. Lots of bands, lots of music, amazing craft brews, and amazing food as well. And Nintendo 64s in the walls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't play this guy in Smash Bros. unless you want to lose horribly. That's all I got to say. There's a whole awesome collection of uh, 80s and 90s pinball games in there. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's really cool really cool spot and they got that uh that one game with the with the shoot 'em guns and you got to go around area 51 cleaning out the zombies oh yeah yeah that's like my favorite man yeah ever since area i was area 51 right yeah oh yeah i think i got a high score on that one last time i was there did you nice yeah. i yeah, need to fill up the whole board yeah yeah to take it over yeah i'd be like who's this guy <laughs> leave your mark it's the machine. only game I'm really, actually, really good at, other than like Minecraft. But you, you know, to be really good at Minecraft, it's not like competitive. So you must have gotten to play that a lot back in the day, huh? Yeah, that and there was a bar in Shepherdstown for a while that had the arcade thing going on. Um, so they had Police Academy, nice. And then they got that one, and uh, oh yeah, I had, oh yeah, they had like 1942 or 1943 up there. Mm -hmm. That Capcom overhead flying mm -hmm. game. Those games are great too. Oh yeah, man, I love them. Uh, yeah, the top scrollers. Yeah, oh, boy. Yeah, those were classics. All right, so this is the this is it right here. We're getting into part seven, Aristotle's worldview and Eric Fromm. Last week we covered part six, which was uh, Aristotle, um, evolution, and Kant. Kant. Yes, and yes. That, that introduced us to the the I don't I don't want to butcher the language, but basically instead of it, you know action reaction third reaction we were introduced to this conundrum of this recursive loop that is biology mm -hmm. that is life mm -hmm. that is this yeah continuance this reciprocal and, feedback and association that we have with existence yeah and aristotle you know felt that his predecessors uh, particularly plato were i guess lacking in I don't want to say their understanding, but their understanding because, like, it was limited more into, you know, the math of things and the shape of things, whereas Aristotle's Grand Awakening was the progression mm -hmm. 
how does the growth you know, and development yeah. and basically apply to all these ideas to living things mm-hmm. you know then the the example of the tree was brought up you know a tree is not a yeah he walks a, outside a thing in action and reaction like, well, this doesn't play along with mm-hmm. cause, and, cause and effect yeah and you know with the linear style of reasoning you don't really want to have a recursive mm-hmm. you know, um yeah, so they came up with the ideas of potential and actuality, and mm-hmm. these words that we still use to this day come from Aristotle. Yep. Yeah, and then, of course, the wood can be the chair or the table or the ship, and then what is its... Uh, oh, how, how did he describe it? It's so... It's tied into the word, ac- like, action, actually. It's... Um, the eidos or the logos. The structural functional organization. Yes, that's it. The structural functional organization um, of something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the actuality of it, which comes from action, so it acts it, as a chair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's just blowing my mind, man. <laughs> this is <laughs> really deep stuff. We're not we're not doing it justice. And um, just the way the words play, though, you, the, the magic that like as we're going through this now, yeah. I'm looking at words different now, and every word like I'd be thinking, I'd be like, well, that's not accurate. Because if you break it down like this, it right. kind of means this. No, that's not what I'm going for. So what's another word? And then, you know, they just keep popping out at you. Um, it's, cor- it's really neat how the world starts to become Yes. Yeah, yeah. more. The more you go through something like what John Bravakis actually pulled off here. And, and the reason I say that we're barely even like scratching the surface and our explanations here trying to sum up quickly is because you know this is a 50 lecture series and it takes some 50 and and this one hour lectures to actually explicate this idea in depth and this is a guy who's basically spent his entire life leading up to doing stuff like this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah whereas like you know i don't know about you personally but i spent a lot of time in my life doing other things that that weren't postulating right yeah May, well i yeah, still postulate 30 years as a meditator and a teacher and a tai chi practitioner as well as a professor and a cognitive scientist studying mm. awareness yeah. and consciousness and mindfulness practices and all of these things um and he's also studied in psychology and he goes on into bi- biology and he's very very deeply versed in the western and eastern ancient wisdom schools and mythology so he, he brings us this broad array of insight and all of those that he's drawing from and building off of as well, the giants that come before and mm-hmm. his colleagues. He's got some amazing colleagues that he works with, like Christopher Masto Pietro and others that if you go to John Bervecki's channel, you'll see he has a lot of ongoing dialogues with some amazing people. And they're all further explicating how can we usher in, further, ex- mm. further uh, accelerate this awakening from the meaning crisis. And, and and it's not like he's you know going out there and cutting and blazing trails. It's it's almost seems like as if he's walking the trails and putting really helpful trail signs that explain things and, and explain what's you know like when you go to like he, you know, he is and he's that's really helping us along the way to understand how we got to where we are. He's also actually forging some new pathways. Yeah, uh, which is well, really sure. yeah. really exciting. So he we're going to get to the cutting edge of our understanding of conscious yeah. awareness here and i guess once you get to the end of the trail and then it's like there's a sign it's like welcome to the unknown paths yes uh there's red paths blue paths yellow paths and green paths and they don't all go to the same places you know are the same length it's you know you can wheel yourself around if you will um because this you know this is all philosophy is in my mind is the continue walking of this path, this mm-hmm. conversation. The understanding of who, then, who are we and, yeah, and, and what br- are we here branching for, off the path to see 
you know, to gain an oversight of something mm-hmm. and, and look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, you follow a natural deer path and it leaves you somewhere or you get completely lost and go down a rabbit hole and, you know, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it's funny how all... there's yeah, some good it's... rabbit holes. Oh boy. Yes. Alice knows. Yeah. Uh, well, early, early internet too, man. Back in the day. You... Oh yeah. Right. The rabbit okay. Hole. So, so he- here we are again, full screen. And uh, we're about to get back into it now, I guess. I think it's a good time. We can yeah, kick it off now. Yeah, we, yeah, we can right, rambling yeah, if I'm we wanted to. Mr. Rogers and take my hat off and take off my jacket and my shoes. Won't you be my neighbor? Get on rolling. All right, guys, here we go. John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Welcome back to Awakening uh, from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we uh, began our discussion of Aristotle and how he has contributed significantly to our understandings of meaning and wisdom. And we talked about how Aristotle was centrally concerned uh, with something that he thought Plato didn't give an adequate enough account of, change. But importantly, uh, Aristotle's term for change is properly understood in terms of growth and development. And we talked about how much your sense of growth and development is constitutive of finding your life to be meaningful. We talked about how Aristotle understood that development in terms of making use of Plato's idea of eidos, form, the structural functional organization, and that what's happening in change and in development is that something is being informed. In particular, uh, something like wood Uh, is the potential to be a table or a chair, and when it has the correct structural functional organization, then the chair starts to act like a table. Sorry, the wood starts to act like a table, or the wood starts to act like a chair. And that is then the idea that when you inform some potential, it gets actualized into a particular thing, and so change is the actualizing of potential via information. And then in order to understand that better, we leapt ahead to look at a current account of growth and development that was directly inspired by Aristotle. We looked at Alicia Uraro's work, and we went through the discussion of what a dynamical system is and how we can use it to understand growth and development in terms of the idea of a virtual engine. We then returned and used that language to better understand Aristotle's idea about wisdom as the cultivation of character, where wisdom is to create a virtual engine, and there's a deep connection between being a virtual engine and the cultivation of virtues. That wisdom is the cultivation of a virtual engine, a character that regulates your self-development, in fact, your self-making, so that you can actualize your potential. You can live up to your potential. And what does living up to that potential mean? It means, and we talked about It means moving through that hierarchy that we talked about last time. The hierarchy of actualization from the mere plant to the animate thing to the mental thing to the rational thing. So to be wise, to live up to your potential is to cultivate a character that most helps you realize your capacity for rational self-reflection, your capacity to appropriate and take charge of your, your ability to engage in self-actualization, self-realization, and to do so in such a way that fulfills the potential of your humanity, that you most 
realize, reveal, actualize the characteristics that make us uniquely human. And that foolishness is to have not properly cultivated your character. So even when you have the correct set of beliefs, you believe that you should not do something, you will still fall prey to acrasia because you have not cultivated adequate enough character. Then I, I challenged you in two ways. I challenged you to try and reanimate and deepen these terms that we use every day to talk about how meaningful our lives are terms of growth and development and actualizing ourselves and living up to our potential to deepen those terms by returning and reflecting upon them using Aristotle, but also a Socratic challenge via Aristotle. What are you doing to cultivate your character? How much time are you dedicating to it? Since it is now reasonable, given this argument, that it plays a significant role and how meaningful your life is, how much time have you devoted, how much time do you regularly devote to it? Now, as promised last time, I want to turn to the other side of Aristotle's work um, and show in a further sense how he contributed to the axial development of these ideas of meaning, wisdom, self-transcendence. And, of course, Aristotle is understanding self-transcendence as this living up to your potential, self-realization, ascending through the hierarchy until you are a fully realized, fully rational human being. Now, Aristotle was interested in rationality for exactly this reason. He thought it was the way of defining human beings. Now, his understanding is axial. Your, uh, rationality is what we've been talking about since the beginning of this series, Right? The axial revolution idea of second-order thinking, you can step back and reflect on the ways in which you're self-deceptive and you're, you have a capacity for self-correction and self-transcendence. That's the hallmark of rationality. Please remember that. Right? Because we have tended, and we'll see much later why, we've tended to reduce rationality to the idea of being logical. But that's not the, that's not the core idea of rationality. The core idea of rationality is your capacity for reflectively realizing your capacity is for self-deception and illusion, and for self-correction. And for Aristotle, that self-correction is a process of also realizing your potential through the cultivation of character. But what is at the heart of rationality? Because if we go back to the Platonic model, Aristotle has told us a bit about one side Right? Character. This is remember Plato talks about how you are aligning the psyche. But Plato also talked about right being in contact with reality. How did Aristotle develop this side of the Platonic equation? This is his way of trying to give a deeper analysis of structuring the psyche to reduce self-deception. What did he do to try and develop Plato's idea of being in contact with reality? Because if you remember, we also have this meta-drive. We need to be in contact with reality. I put it to you that that is, in fact, the core feature, or at least the core motivation of rationality. The core motivation of rationality is the desire to come into as 
deep a contact with reality as possible by those means that are as reliable as possible. So for Aristotle, this brought him into a discussion about what it is to truly know something. To truly know something. And again, he's going to be deeply influenced by Plato, while of course making his own uh, unique changes and challenges to Plato. So we have got a view uh, in which we think, we, we largely conceive of knowing as being able to give a very accurate description of something. I know what a chair is if I can really describe it very well to you. Now, the, there, there's a challenge to that if I were to ask you the following. Who knows better what a chair is? Somebody who could describe a chair very well to you or somebody who could actually make a chair? And many people would say, well, you know, the person who can describe it doesn't really understand, and, and they'll all probably struggle for words here, and they'll use words taken from Aristotle without realizing. They don't get the essence of a chair, right? Because if you can make a chair, then you've grasped something more. And this is, again, related to this notion. If you can cause a chair to be, if you can cause it to be, then you deeply understand what a chair is. <clears throat> so... Aristotle then asks, well, what is it that the chairmaker has that the accurate descriptor does not have? And again, it goes back to what we saw before. When I gave you my description of the bird, you know, it has wings and beaks and all this stuff, and I was lacking the eidos, I was lacking the form, the structural functional organization. So Aristotle says, what the chairmaker has that the good, the good describer doesn't have is the chairmaker actually has in their mind the eidos. Think of it like an architect, right, that has a blueprint. Okay. The architect has in their mind the structural functional organization that is actually going to be shared in the building. The architect has the eidos. The chairmaker has the eidos in their mind, and they can actualize, they can use that eidos to actualize the potential in the wood to make the chair. So, to know something is to possess the same eidos as it. Now, the architect, right, when he has the eidos for the, the building, he, he, doesn't have a, he doesn't have a material building in his mind. You couldn't go and house a family of five in, inside his mind. Right? When, we, when we say that they, it has the same pattern, we don't mean it's actualizing the same matter as wood and metal in a building, but the same form is there. So for Aristotle, when I know something, and this is the original meaning of this word, Right? There's conformity. I share the same form with it. So when I know some object or know something, my mind takes on the same structural, functional organization as the thing, <clears throat> such that if I could take that eidos from my mind and actualize it in some potential, I could make an instance of the thing. I could cause it to be. So, if you'll 
Remember, shape is not the same thing as form, but we can use shape, as Aristotle does, as an analogy for form. So when I know the cup, I could know it by standing away from it and describing it, right? trying to describe its shape, and I'm using shape as an analogy for form, or I can actually conform to the cup. I'm actually taking the same shape. And notice how this enables me to causally interact with the cup in a much more intimate and complex and sophisticated fashion. So when you know something for Aristotle, your mind is in conformity with it. Now, that's really important because that means in Aristotle's theory of knowing, there's no distinction as we typically have between knowing and being. What do I mean by that? Again, using the analogy. Here's the modern view. I'm over here describing it. It's over there, independent. I'm over here describing it. Here's Aristotle's view. I'm actually changing my structure. This isn't just, I'm not just knowing and having beliefs. I'm being changed. This is a change in my being, not just a change in my knowing. The conformity theory doesn't just change your beliefs, it changes the very structure and functioning of your being. So the conformity theory is a very different way of thinking about how we know things. So Charles Taylor, who I've mentioned before, Herbert Dreyfus and others, they talk about the conformity theory as a contact epistemology. So to know something is to be in contact with it is to actually participate in the same form as the thing. We're going to come back to this sense of participatory knowing. Participatory knowing is when I shape myself in order to know the thing, and I know it by conforming to it. This is different from descriptive knowing, where I stand apart and I generate propositions about the thing. So the conformity theory has this very powerful idea of an intimate connection between the mind and reality. And it's based on a very powerful idea. And, as I've mentioned, Aristotle is going through a significant revival in our understanding of living things, understanding of mental things. We are increasingly coming to see that this kind of contact knowing, this participatory knowing, is much more central to how uh, cognition works than we previously thought. We're going to come back to that uh, a lot in in this series. I just want you to take note of it now. Notice how this, what we need to notice right now, is how this theory of knowing, which is also a theory of being, satisfies that desire of being in contact with reality as opposed to being like separate from it and merely pointing at it with my words or my propositions. All right. So if I'm in conformity with the world, that tells you something very interesting. The structural functional organization, my patterns of intelligibility, remember for Plato, intelligibility, and Aristotle completely inherits this. Like I say, again, read Eric Pearl's book on this. Right? How I make sense of things The pattern of intelligibility is the same pattern by which the thing is organized. So, when I'm making sense of things, 
there's a structural functional organization in my mind that is shared with the structural functional organization of what I'm making sense of things. But does that mean that you know everything I think is just true? No, Aristotle is like a genius, right? He he he's probably you know. Uh, a, a, a clear instance of what's been called a universal genius. So we, we shouldn't dismiss it, what Aristotle says so easily. I mean, Aristotle literally writes the book on everything. You, 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 you come, say you're at a party with Aristotle. And you say, oh, well, I'm interested in physics. And then he'll, he'll, here, I wrote the book on this. This is called Physics. This is the book that started physics. Oh, well, I'm also interested in philosophy. I'm, I'm interested in metaphysics. Here's the boat book I wrote on metaphysics. Well, I'm interested in how animals move. Here's my book I wrote on how animals move. I'm interested in psychology. Here's my book. Dreams. Here's my book. How to write books. Here's my book. Aristotle is right, just an astonishing intellect. So what does he mean then? Well, what he means is right, that after we've done all that axial age, second-order thinking... All, after we've done all this Socratic and Platonic argument and discussion, all we've done this rational reflection, once we then get to that IDOS, that structural functional organization, we can be confident that what structural functional organization we're finding and how we make sense of things is the same. Or to put it in a slogan, when we've made sense of things, the pattern in our mind is the same as the pattern in the world. So, what are those processes? Aristotle, like everything he does, he tries to explicate a little bit more. So, think about this. Think about how you try and determine if something was real, if it really is the case. So, let's say you're interested in Susan, and you're talking to your friend Tom. And Tom and Susan and yourself, you were at a party the previous night. And Tom tells you, oh, Susan, I think Susan really likes you. Now, this is important to you because you really like Susan. You'd really like it if Susan liked you. This would be a good thing. <clears throat> and, but you don't want to leap into this because your heart has been broken before and you've acted foolishly and impulsively, so you want to make sure. So you say, wait, wait, come on, Tom. I, I saw you last night. You were really hammered. Like, you, you were drunk. I don't believe you. And this is, Tom says, no, 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 no. I heard this way before I was drunk. I heard this at the beginning. I heard Susan say this at the beginning. And then you say, come on, Tom. There were so many people. It was so noisy. How can you be sure? And Tom says, no, no. I, this was in the kitchen. Susan was in the kitchen when I heard her say it. It wasn't that noisy there. And then you say, I don't know. And then so Tom says, yeah, but Andrew and you know Jane also heard Susan say that. And you go, oh, wow, I think Susan likes me. So you do these three tests. You make sure that your, the, the relevant organ of cognition, right, your, your attention, right, your memory, your brain, was functioning normally. Yes, it is. It's functioning normally. Okay, so I was sober. You make sure that the environment isn't creating distorting conditions. Too much noise, right? No, no, it's, it's an optimal environment. So, let's do this. Organ operating optimally. Environment optimal or really good. 
And then I look for, did other people experience it? Intersubjective agreement. So, this is what you do, right? You, you very carefully try to get your mind into an optimal state. You make sure the medium is the best, right? And you do a lot of intersubjective discussion to make sure that you're in agreement with other people. So you do really deep philosophy. You argue and discuss. You, do, you, you enact like the Socratic thing. You really train your mind. You get the appropriate conditions. You do all this. You, get, you come to some agreement. And then once you get there, you can have significant confidence that you're in conformity with reality, that the pattern that's in your mind is the pattern that's in the world. Now, I point this out to you, not because I want to say that Aristotle's ultimately right, because we're going to see how that way of doing things was challenged, but I want to point out to you how you still do it now. There's something deeply plausible and practical in what Aristotle's saying. This is how you, on a day-to-day basis, try to make sure that you're in touch with things. All right, we're back. That does seem like a good time to pause there. DJ's got notes. We are ready. Yeah, right. I took notes this time around. It's okay. I didn't didn't spend as much time with this as I'd like, so notes, notes are helpful. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. It it helps me uh, recall what we just went through, actually. <laughs> what <laughs> because we were subjected so, to. It, cause, yeah, because the brain, it starts to you know, t- run into all these different tracks of interesting thought lines you can go down, so you start exploring. Or following the little fairy lights and getting lost. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got to track back. So, yeah, so we are uh, learning more about how Aristotle uh, really focused on the process of self-development, self-transcendence, to become fully rational, a fully functional human being, and to be rational, as as the term originally meant, was to be self-reflective, self-transcendent, and self-correcting constantly. So this reciprocal interaction with the environment, constantly updating the mindset to be able to conform better with reality and then reality gives you better feedback and so it becomes a recursive loop i think that the term is second order thinking second order thinking was something that was a very major part of the axial age revolution self-reflection self self self-reflection self-deception and then Mm -hmm. well add more people into the mix really and then yeah the capacity for self-deception yeah. Uh, and then just imagine, yeah, more people also working on the capacity for self-correction. So, yeah, through the cultivation of character, we realize our potential. We get in uh, ever greater degrees of contact with reality. And it's a meta drive yeah. within us. It's a core motivation yeah, with, within human beings. And I guess the, that Aristotle identifies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and character and contact with reality is being merged like and using you know the same tools you would use to you know develop wisdom develop your character are the same tools that you can use to understand reality yeah 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 now yeah. we're getting some wizard territory here this, it's like this you is know, cool. so yeah start to and it's cool they, i like that he he gives us that difference between just being able to really well describe a chair is not the same no level of mm-hmm. knowing knowing exactly how to build a chair because you understand all the ins and outs, the measurements, yeah, these, the feeling. The, 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 the two types of knowing that are the heart of rationality, mm-hmm. one of them is the 
It's like um, information versus conformity. Yeah, one of them is the being able to, you know, tell you about the mm-hmm. chair, knows everything about the chair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the other is the idos of the chair, the fun- structural functional, functional form yeah. of the chair yes and the you know it's interesting that you know if you mentioned you know brings up craftsmen and like the craftsmen mm-hmm. of the chair is when you're making something you really do have to conform to it yes you know yes. man you build, so all the mirror neurons in the brain are mapping this thing out as you well you got to actually use your body to and, build and, and shape build jigs and tools that you have to think about how are they so it's like you know mm. you've got your body you can mold to it but then your mind yes, you, you can understand make something the interactions. else do you understand the physics you don't understand so much more the weightedness of things and, yeah and so those are the two types of understanding that are mm-hmm. useful or at the heart, I've got a nice yeah. little heart of rationality. Yeah, no distinction between knowing and being with this yeah. kind of knowing. Yeah, that's this the is, second this is type of knowing. setting us up because he's going to introduce Buddha here in a little bit and setting us up for the next video. Um, but we're going to start getting into beingness more now. Yeah, and, and the line he said in here is to know something is to possess the same idos as something. Eidos, the same stru- yes. stru- structural functional Functional organization, yeah. Organiza- yeah, of that. Yeah. And, well, it, like I said while we are watching it, you guys couldn't hear, but um, about like this going back to the shaman mm-hmm. and why you run around and try to be like the deer to gain understanding of it. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, and you can see like how deeply those maps will be made in the brain. Um, not just of the shaman, but of those watching him because mm-hmm. he's he's embodying the exact movements that, as well as he can replicate that he's seen in the wild of how this thing reacts in different situations. Everyone's watching that, picking up on all of those cues and then creating that kind of platonic, solid version of the thing in their mind mm-hmm. as well. And, and that, uh, that conf- so this is conformity theory. It's not yeah. just about like, changing your belief about something it's actual participatory knowing and i you like, don't just believe that you're the deer you actually understand very much how to conform to be yeah. similar to that well and even, even the example of him like grabbing the cup you are being a cup being the cup to a certain degree you know you're holding it you you can adjust the well not the tilt of the liquid liquid stays flat but the tilt of the cup and how mm-hmm. the liquid interacts and, and there's no that's, cup without that's, a human being to like describe and utilize. And and the the thing he said that I thought was hilarious and brilliant was you know being the cause of something because. Yeah. I imagine the kid is just when the kid's like, well, to, keeps asking the question. You're like, well, because to be the cause well, of. Yeah, be the cause of. Yes. Um, you know, so in the sense of making the chair, you're the cause mm-hmm. of the chair becoming. Yeah. Um, yeah. That there's an intimate connection there between the mind and the reality and that's what aristotle is then trying to help us learn how to do is to further allow ourselves to be in a participatory yeah, relation well, with existence it, like you got to participate you mm-hmm. know how often have you heard that well you have to participate and i yeah. want to well yeah. you're not going to understand it if you don't participate and how do we know if something's real if we don't yeah yeah, yeah. Well, so <laughs> yeah that's, <right. laughs> and that's that's the question how do you know if the, what's real if and if your perception of things is accurate and so this this desire that we have within us for self-reflection for self-transcendence for self-correction is uh it's a it's a healthy core drive 
that at our detriment we slack off on you know mm, yeah well you know, slacking feels good it does sometimes though you know it's good to have moments to uh relax and and you know our that's something that we forget how to do is we forget to breathe like just deep in our stomachs like when you see it well you see it in babies you see it in animals we learn to start breathing up here more in our chest in this area. Which is useful so if you got to get up and go and do something, kill very something. Very useful if you need to be in fight or flight mode and all your blood is there then in your – thank you very much. <laughs> it is there then in all your extremities. It's yeah, you know, well, the, it's in the arms and the legs rather than calm. in the core. So you got to return it to the core. Yeah. That requires some deep belly breathing, and then you can feel very relaxed, helpful in any moment. Breath, man, better than Prozac. Oh, yeah, the art of breathing. Just but, learning to breathe again, man. Yeah, and just be able to settle deep into reality. See it clearly, you know, without the resistance pushing away information anywhere. Taking as much as we can to really be able to delineate between what's true and right and good for one and all really seems a, a good compass for us. Yeah, so getting back to the conformity theory. Mm-hmm. That, that's a wonderful thought, but well, that's what I mean. That's conforming, and, and yeah, with and, reality, and it's our core desire to conform to the world and make sure our mind's understanding of the world is as close as what the world actually is. And getting mm-hmm. back to horror, the it's greatest a, horror you can feel is not like it. The, the the way the world is is not the way your mind thought of it as. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the you know that's like the breakdown you see when people have a breakdown before mm-hmm. they come to aphasia, a realization I think you said aphasia or aphasia and then acrasia is the disconnect with ourself our truth and our knowing of ourself with reality mm-hmm. so we're not yeah well truly that, honoring our promise our potential we feel that innately as well so that's the acrasia. yeah and that would be the you know the opposite like we have this drive to connect with the world by understanding the world and then the reaction to not doing it you know, mm-hmm. much like love. You know, yes. there's love, and then the reaction to not love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the symptoms of the lack of love. Mm-hmm. And like going all the way back, what was it? You know, Socrates and the uh, uh, philosophia philosophy, mm-hmm. the, the the love, love of wisdom of, of wisdom, and, yeah, and and it's like the fellowship, ship, love, love of wisdom. Yeah. yeah. So engaging in fellowship together in the mm-hmm. love. So that's you wisdom. know that's the writing love current mm-hmm. and you know like I, I don't i don't i don't necessarily think there's a significant amount of people that aren't trying to expand their understanding and connect to the world more oh, how, how to explain this we it's, really it's, all it's, are it's, trying to do that well, in so many ways there are some people that like very few people that will use this knowledge to manipulate and don't have that love. And it's mm-hmm. a power thing opposed to a love thing. But I think there's a lot less than what you'd actually think. You know, everybody wants to think everybody else is corrupt and horrible and evil people. But I think, you know, even the most misguided um, is still trying to come to grasps with what the world is, what yeah. they, they see are, it they as. Typically do seem to think, that they're, what they're doing is right. Well, if you can't change yourself and your mind, what do you have to do? You have to change the world. So you have to get some power if you want to change the world. Mm-hmm. The world's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very true. Yeah. Uh, very few truly evil men, but the good men 
that look on and do nothing is what causes those monsters to yeah. persist. That, that was a horrible. Well, yeah, thing. you we know, know the Einstein re- quote. Uh, responsible, you know, having a healthy, responsible community. Part of that is being able to figure out who those who would wish to do harm to gain power are, and make sure that they don't rise to the top and take everybody out. That's our hero story, like the Wild West stories. Yes. You know, the guy who comes in. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you know. Uh, even you know, wow, wow, at wow. the end, even the sheriff has to respect him. You know, like, but yeah, yeah I remember uh, the quote health- now. It, it was uh, the world is not dangerous because there are so many evil men. In fact, there are very few. It is because of the good men that look on and yeah. do nothing. It's yes. a warning, big time. Yeah, true that. Well, let's yes. see if I got anything else. Oh, um, yeah. So how 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 we tell if something's true or not and he broke it down mm-hmm. really well into these three different things it's it's basically you got the primary source which in this case was your buddy telling you that so-and-so likes you but it could be yourself too i see this i observe this mm-hmm. well you got to check in and make sure well was i sound of mind and or yes. like if it's like a ufo thing do you got actual recording equipment or is it a grainy dot that's right you know? so you check if your measuring tools are working optimally, yeah. were you sober in this case? Yeah, but hey, in the case of UFOs, we can take it all the way through. So, yeah. did you have a good camera? Mm-hmm. You know, was there any static in the environment? Yeah, that would mess up your camera or anything else. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing in your environment, well, in your environment would be are like, are you next to an airport? Mm-hmm. Are there any mm-hmm. military bases around? Are there a lot of people who have drones and stuff? Do you live in like a, you know a high, you know, base? Well upper middle class area where people have toys that they play with and all that stuff you know Mm. so that would be in your environment it's like nope i was out in the middle of nowhere there was nothing no military bases nothing i got in the middle of nowhere i saw this thing i had a really good camera that captured it well then the third is was there anybody else intersubjective agreement yeah the intersubjective yeah right down the hill there was like a highway and cars start stopping and getting out and and was looking up and pointing at the same thing I was looking at. Well, and interestingly enough, our, our like entire legal system is kind of built off of that same structuring where, mm-hmm. you know, you, do you have a reliable witness? Mm-hmm. Was the environment that that witness in? Mindset. Mindset that yeah, witness you know, was in um, clear. And, yeah. and then were there other witnesses? Mm-hmm. Or same thing with evidence, but it's, it's like these, you know, this... Well, it's good to know that our legal system functions like that, at least has that mm-hmm. in it, you know, because mm-hmm. if, if it didn't, oh boy. Really? Well, and at, at yeah. periods and times, our legal systems didn't have this reasoning. No, no. You know, it's pretty much just she's a witch burner or, you know. Yeah, yeah. If she survives, then she's a yeah, witch. Yeah, yeah. If, if she, she sinks, she, she's a witch. <laughs> yeah, if she floats, she's a witch because she's made out of wood because wood floats. Oh boy. Python. Reminds of Monty Python. It reminds me of Monty Python, and yeah, they, they were doing this reasoning where they're standing up there, and it's just like, you know, like, well, if the witch floats, what other things float? Well, a duck floats. Ah, then she must be lighter than a duck. So they wear against the duck. <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, you know, and then the arm, you know, the duck arm was real long, and her arm wasn't very long, so the duck, of course, was heavier than she was, and. You know, so if a witch, if somebody's lighter than a duck, they're a witch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's something like that, but yeah, yeah. Oh no, Monty Python's brilliant for that. Like humor, humor is one of those you can learn some really, really deep, deep can, wisdom through things that are just ridiculously, you know, obtuse and absurd. Mm-hmm. Absurd is. And the you word can bring love about. into the most difficult subjects. Sure. And allow us all to laugh together and 
to see a truth together. Well, in humor, you know that somebody loves you when they rag on you. So they wouldn't really rag on you if they didn't. Right. You yeah. Cause I mean? it's, yeah. There's an endearing. It's like if I like you, I'm I'm I'm, I'm gonna mess with you. I'm sorry. That's just that's how I learned to love. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're gonna mess with Verveki. Mm. Hey, buddy. He's yeah, man. Pretty cool for a kid. Oh, you can't see what I'm doing over here. Hold on. Oh, were you picking his nose with the to, pointer? Yeah, yeah. Get a little draw tool and put a mustache on him. Sorry, Verveki. <laughs> All right, so let's jump back into it. You ready? I am ready. All right. So how are things? What is the structural functional pattern of the world? When I'm making sense of things. So Aristotle is also, as I said, considered, you know, a foundational figure in science. In fact, for the, uh, for literally millennia, right, a millennia, he he is basically identical to science. Knowing Aristotle is to know science. So he's building upon all the pre-Socratic philosophers before him. But basically, he, what he says is, okay, how is the world organized? What is the structure of reality? Well, how does it look to us? How, what can we all agree on? Okay, so we're all stone-cold sober. Clear day, we can all talk, we can agree. And this is when, now try to get back to Aristotle's time. This is how things seem to all of us. We're at the center. And and this is something we're going to come back to because that's how your perceptual cognitive system seems to operate. You're at the center. Things are moving around us. So he has a geocentric worldview. The earth is at the center. Well, why do things move? Like, why are things moving? So he has the uh, idea, again, that things move for the same reason you do. Remember Thales talked about that? The magnet is moving, you're moving. Look, Look, when I lift on this, and it's pushing against me, that feels... No different to me than when some a person is pushing on me. It feels like the table is moving itself against me. Again, don't concentrate on whether or not this is true. Concentrate on how much sense it makes. Like when I move the pen away from the earth, it looks like it moves itself to get back there. Which looks exactly like I want to be over there and I move myself there because I'm separated from where I want to be. So Aristotle's idea is that everything right, is made up of elements, basic elements like earth, water, air, and fire. Things that have a lot of earth in them, like this marker, want to be where earth naturally is. Earth is at the center. So if you, as you move things away from the earth, things fall back towards it. Water is going to be on the surface, fire moves up, and air is above. So notice when I, when I burn some wood how much sense this makes of it. Because when I burn the wood, the fire comes up, 
The water that's evaporated spreads out as condensation, right? And then the ash, the earthen part, falls down. So for Aristotle, the earth is at the center, and this is the thing. Everything is moving by a process of natural motion. Everything has an internal drive, just like you. Everything is trying to get where it belongs. Everything has a natural place. So, and this is very important, everything is moving on purpose. Everything is trying to get where it belongs. So notice how meaningful this view of things is. Everything is moving, just like you. You're, You're doing things to get where you belong, and where you are where you belong, then that's, right, the fulfillment of your goals. That's what makes your life meaningful. So all of these things, the whole, everything in this cosmos, remember we talked about that when we talked about Pythagoras, a beautiful order. Everything in this cosmos is moving purposefully, meaningfully. Now you, I mean, it's important that you resist the temptation here to be smug and say, wow, what a silly idea. I mean, thinking the Earth's at the center. Isn't he a Luddite? Right? No, because the idea that the Earth is not at the center, that the idea that the Earth is rotating, was known in the ancient world. It's known by Aristarchus, for example. The problem with this view is that there, are, well, there were great counter-arguments about it. Look, if the Earth is rotating, right, and you, right, you think the Earth is rotating, that means if I'm on the Earth and it's rotating, and I drop an object, right, as the object is dropping, I'm moving forward with rotation, I end up here, and the object drops should then end up behind me. Because as I let go of it, I'm moving on the Earth that's rotating, and it should fall behind me. So let's do it. Let's run the experiment. Oh, it doesn't fall behind me. See, what you need to realize is that until you also have an idea of something like universal gravitation and other ideas like inertial motion, the idea that the Earth is rotating actually doesn't make good sense of the, of the phenomena. If it's rotating, why am I not feeling a breeze on my face constantly when I face one way rather than the other? So there was all kinds of arguments. So Aristotle has a sense that we can still appreciate. He has a sense of well, this is how we get in contact with reality, and this is how this is the pattern that is making sense to me. And what I mean by that is, even though you and I are post Descartes, post Newton, right, and we know, and we're post right Copernicus, we still move around the Earth as if it's at the center, and that right, the Earth isn't moving, and that objects fall directly down. Etc., etc. So, given that, given the, the, the tremendous plausibility of Aristotle's proposal, we can now put these two sides together. You've got the geocentric right, world, and by world, I don't just mean the Earth, I mean the cosmos, right? 
with the Earth at the center and everything moved by natural motion. And then what we have over here is we have the conformity theory of knowing, and I'm going to hyphenate these words because these are not separate for this theory the way they are for us, knowing being. It's a way of being and a way of knowing. And what I want you to see is how much they mutually support each other. This is very plausible. That's why I told you that whole story about the person who knows how to make the chair. And once you admit that this is plausible and you use Aristotle's test, it supports this view of things. Because if, we're in, if the conformity theory is right, and I do all of this rational reflection, this is the intelligible pattern that I see. Now, I can look at this and say, this is the intelligible pattern, and it, it's plausible. It makes sense of mo so many things. And that view, that view of the world then lends evidence that I am, in fact, in conformity with reality. It provides evidence for the conformity theory. And notice these two things are now mutually supporting each other. That's how you get a worldview, right? You have an account of the world and you have an account of how you know the world that mutually support each other in very strong bonds of plausibility. We back. We are back. Here we are. Yeah, so conformity theory allows us to shape ourselves to the cosmos. And even though they weren't accurate, the world, in fact, is not the center of the universe and everything doesn't revolve around us. That was the most sensible thing well, to believe it, at the time it, because it, that's what it looked as well like. as they could measure. That's yeah. certainly what it looked like. And we still act to this day as if it is that way, mm -hmm. other than, you know, when mm -hmm. we have to, like, lob things into space and do other things like that for from day to day. Yeah. It's not much different, you know. And it's understandable, then, that why human beings will hold on to ideas when something new comes along that is actually updating us. We can be a little bit slow well, into the acceptance of it because we're really trying to make sure that it's true. We're trying to go through that verification process, right? It, yeah, a scientific method should. You know, the reason why we believe the things we do now is because there's good counter-arguments mm -hmm. with the information and understanding level that we have now. Yeah, yeah it seems in, we do that culturally, too, over it, periods of time. Well, it's the merger of, you know... What works for uh, wisdom and character mm -hmm. also works for the understanding of reality. Yeah, the thing has got to be intersubjectively agreed upon by a large number of people before it becomes a larger uh, zeitgeist for the world, a larger world uh, order for everybody, you know. Um, so, yeah, intersubjective agreement, optimal environment, optimal measuring. So uh, Aristotle building on the pre-Socratic up to his present day trying to understand what is the nature of reality develops this worldview to make sense uh, that was the most rational thing they could come up with at the time which was the ge geocentric worldview and you, you pointed out like attracts like so the elements seem to attract that's why yeah. there's like this thing that now we know is gravity but that's why the pin falls when he lets go of it of course is because well the pin is made of earth the earth is earth and it's bigger and stronger well, so it attracts it well yeah like it's so you know you could think of like the way he explained it i think of is like earth would be this mm -hmm. right earth would be this you know down water would be this it spreads out mm -hmm. the, the fire is like this 
mm-hmm. it, goes it goes up. up. And then the air is like the this, and it stays and up then, in there. Yeah, but then it falls um, as ash too. Well, so and the earth returns to itself. It's no wonder that separately the rain returns. Many civilizations came up, you know, like like you got the the elements in uh, Chinese, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, it was all metal, that metal, elements, fi- fire, air, earth, water, metal, mm-hmm. wood. Mm-hmm. I guess it. I don't. Know, I could be could be missing one or two. It's exciting to learn about this because this well, is how we begin to become uh, more rationally oriented beings. And we applied this not only to be able to become better tool makers and get ourselves up to the level we are now with satellites and smartphones, but we also were using this internally, self-reflectively to develop ourselves further, to become wiser, more symbiotic beings with our environment and with one another. And, and the fact that we started to consciously explicate and describe that and share that knowledge with one another and develop that wisdom together. That's really exciting. That's really cool to see. So this is how we got to where we are. And it's amazing that, you know, what we can do with an imperfect understanding. Really? Like, you know, like, of course, now we realize that not everything's made of earth, you know, water, air, Yeah, but study Stoicism or look at the... But you were able to ancient temples makes you know make metals make yeah, steel. Yeah, the sophistication um, of their technology and their architecture. Well, like say like blacksmithing, you know, you have your earth, which would be came up with democracy. But yeah, go on, sorry. Which would be you know so in like blacksmithing, you mm-hmm. have your earth, which would be your coal and your metal, and then you have your air, which comes up through your toyer to help build heat, and then you have your fire, which is literally fire, and then where the water comes in is. Not the quench. I know everybody's like, the quench. But when you're using coal, you put water around so the fresh coal that you put over the top doesn't immediately burn. So it then burns down into coke, which is actually what makes the heat. It's not the coal. Like, you're cooking it down as you go. So you're incorporating all the elements together, even though that's not what it is. You're basically just, you know, blowing oxygen, which creates a reaction with the hydrocarbons mm-hmm. that you're burning through the coal and then steel is a crystalline matrix that you know like it but it still works you can still build you know fantastic swords and katanas uh you can you know yeah that's really wild because it's nothing but atoms spinning all the way through well that's you know, what, that's what we think that's the imperfect understanding we have as now far well, as we even, have, well even the, the as far as we can tell these pinpricks through even, time and space even the solar system type understanding of an atom actually is not like technically when you look at it it's it's more of you know more of like figure eights or lobes um and it's a probability matrix for the electrons y- yeah well. yeah so it's not actually spinning around it's just a probability if you look there there's a probability we know that it vibrates and so there does seem to be um, a cyclical nature they have their own shapes and they're yeah yeah uh, very pretty art potential if you look up that stuff but yeah it's such a per- like you don't have to have a perfect understanding of the universe to really make an effect on it mm. or to deeply appreciate yeah. and be in communion with it. Yeah. So, you, you know, you're never too, you're never too, uh, uneducated or dumb to actually have profound insights and be able to do quite a lot. Thank we God. Sh- we, get, yeah. we get down on ourselves a and, lot. And Come thank, on, man. And thank for Vake you for actually breaking this down so that you know, I <laughs> can, like understand, me, can like, understand it. I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, this is very much your idiot's guide to awakening from the meaning crisis. I'm Chris, and this is, well, this is DJ. And uh, <laughs> no, ho- hopefully an that we'll, we, we will be able to stave off uh, the idiocracy uh, dystopian future scenario. But I hear it has electrolytes. 
That's true. <laughs> Camacho. So, Camacho for Prez, baby. So, yeah, um, Aristotle's understanding or the way he thought is, is everything's moving on purpose and mm-hmm. the purpose is meaningful. That's good. And it yeah. is reasonable that he would think that. This because, worldview must have been deeply meaningful. Well, what moves the thing if you don't have a yeah. conception it, of it, gravity? Everything is moving because everything is imbued with meaning. There's this beautiful order, and it's that's all its moving purpose. on purpose because the, that's its purpose. The, the river's purpose is to have water run through yes. it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The chair's purpose is to be sitable and <laughs> solid. So that, yeah, that's a really beautiful idea and a way of relating with the world. And we've been taking that apart ever since because we our our instruments are so finely tuned now that we're breaking apart every belief system over and over and over again. You know, now we know we're certainly not geo in a geocentric cosmos. But to a certain degree, though, like, and this isn't like in in the ego sense. This is just in the sense of like observable reality. You are the center of your own universe because you can look in infinitely in any well, direction. Well, that's true as far as from your own body. Now, yeah. the universe does not revolve around you. No. But no, y- your perspective trick. point is the center of your twisted. universe. Yeah. Because um, yeah. if, if you can look infinitely out and infinitely in any direction, well, the, the, you're equidistantly in the middle of everything. Mm. And we're, it seems to Whoa. be that our existence as humans with animals and plants roughly around this size and everything seems to be the the universal like average in between size Mm. you know we're not Mm. galaxy or galaxy cluster size but we're also not subatomic either we're like in the middle because you can look infinitely big and infinitely small that's the that's the fourth dimension the the in the out yeah and we have a somewhat small to medium-sized sun right yeah and it's not a spectacular sun we're a weird planet we've got one moon uh which is rare it's either no moons or multiples Oh yeah. Well, we the got tides s- are more predictable. We got smacked by another another planet. Can you at imagine some point the weather with three moons that are like pretty close to each other. Uh, could you imagine the earthquakes and you know like? Jeez, man. Yeah, and, and the tides like trying to yeah, trying to predict the tides. Giant lava tidal tidal waves and it's yeah. happened here too, though, man. Well, that's how Earth was for a long time when the moon was a lot closer, and that's what got it. You know, well. One of the things that they kept think the it moon turning. came from Earth, right? Yeah, so they did a, a new simulation that, that I thought was interesting. It was the most high resident um, simulation. So basically, a planet roughly around the size of Mars smacked into us, fused with us, and then threw up a lot of ejecta into uh, orbit. Hmm. And what this simulation found is actually the moon formed rather quickly. Hmm. And what happens when you do that with like liquid, like you know, like ba- basically be glass at that point being ejected into space because it's so hot. Just it's like volcanic, you know, like plasma. Yeah, uh, yeah, and sure, hot magma. Well, they, you know, the conspiracy theorists, the, the the hollow moon conspiracy theorists. I don't think they're right in the sense that there's an alien base inside the moon because when <laughs> the lander oh, landed, wow. I know it, about they, hollow Earth. I didn't know about hollow. Moon. Yeah, well, apparently when the lander People landed, it, it created a ping, like a bell. Well. Like, say, if you got slag, which slag is glass that comes off of something, you'll see those little round pellets that went through the air. If they're big enough and dry quick enough, they'll be hollow. Yeah. Well, so, if its core is, is cooled off now, then 
Oh, it probably it doesn't. Is. In all honesty, it probably has a big old hole in it. Like if it happened as quick as what the simulation said, I'd be super. Because yeah. like when you take like you know molten glass and everything was trying to expand out, and then it just cooled. Oh yeah, it got smacked, yeah. and then the outside cooled, and it just all contracted towards the outside, and then you get this void. Yeah, the Earth is just a smaller ball of plasma than yeah. the Sun. If it's big enough, then it'll just burn and burn and burn for billions yeah. of years. If it's small enough, it'll form form like a hard outer shell as it cools off, and then. If some mushrooms happen to land on the planet, then they'll start eating. Oh, well, that's that, well, the, you know when that's they the panspermia decay. conspiracy theory. Yeah, well, except I it's think not that's a conspiracy. the most likely. It's, I think that's the most likely. I mean, we know that the first organism to walk on land was fungus. So either the fungus developed somehow the, um, in the water in that primordial soup, or it came from somewhere else. And either either seems equally likely. Well, fungus helped to break down the inert rocks on the land into stuff resembling soil for then bacteria other funguses and Mm -hmm. other plants to start breaking down and to create the cycle because there's a primary decomposer a secondary and a tertiary decomposer and that's our standard cycle for how things rot yeah yeah because as the Um, mushrooms started to grow before plants even developed the mushrooms started getting really tall on this planet apparently yeah there was a period of time and they found these ancient fossils but there's mushrooms that got 15 to 30 to 50 feet tall by the time that the first plants were around like waist high for us and those are like more like fungus based mushroom looking plants with like a couple of stems coming off of them before they started to become the hardy plants that they are now interesting thing about fungus is it can exist as a primary decomposer secondary decomposer and a tertiary decomposer Mm -hmm. whereas like you know like animals are usually your primary decomposers your bugs that get in there and like you know eat the whatever and the bacterias that Mm. you know like if you've ever seen roadkill that's about to pop yeah that's doing they're they're all all the way but you know the the yeast the funguses there's the primary ones that start the reaction the secondary ones that help break it down into nutrients and then like the plants like you know your plants Mm -hmm. tend to be your tertiary um, yes. There's other plants that are not. But. And most of a mushroom's body is actually it's underground. It's actually it's mycelium. yeah, oh yeah. What they put up is just a spread is just a yeah. reproductive. So when you like lift mechanism. up an old rotted log and you see a bunch of white mm-hmm. cobwebby looking stuff, that's actually mycelial roots of a mushroom, all one cell membrane thick, and so just like billions and billions of spider webby structure, and it actually trades in- information and nutrients with the through the forest with the trees and everything else that comes into contact with it and so they have this symbiotic relationship with trees where they'll feed and receive mm-hmm. nutrients to the trees and from and they can even forewarn other further parts of themselves away if something live steps in an area then it sends a signal well, throughout like, the network well with that's earth's internet yeah and with like morel, you know morel hunting if you rip up the morel instead of cutting it off they ain't gonna grow there no more whoa smart yeah right they know yeah, and then there's slime molds, which is, you know. Freakish. Those those are aliens, I swear. That was probably early. Well, we got slime molds. We, we got slime molds. We still got slime, do, yeah, slime, mold, slime molds now, man. Yeah, no, no, but I'm saying maybe <laughs> that's the way it was. Primordial times, a lot of it was slime, mold, slime molds. Yeah, well, they're mobile. You know, they can get around. They can creep. They can crawl. They can network in real time. You can watch them move and pulsate. Oh, my it's gosh. really weird. Yeah. Nightmare fuel. Um, the beginning. Well, and it's interesting. We're talking about, you know, the... You know, like, how would we understand where life came from in the universe and how is the moon made and stuff like that? Because we've had a whole bunch of theories and now we have simulation stuff that Mm -hmm. can very accurately simulate a high amount of. We still don't know all the way, but we know a lot more. We're getting better. Yeah. Um, We should take a quick break. I got to pee. Let's do that. 
Um, and we'll grab yourself a smoke or a snack. We'll be right back. See you in a few. Meow. Yo, 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 we're back. All right, yes. What's up, everybody? So, 30 seconds to get us back into where we're at. Um, Aristotle's trying to find uh, what are the patterns of this world, you know, by observing what does it look like. Um, And with, you know, reasonable assumptions, even though they are wrong in our eyes now because we know more, but they're still accurate enough, you know. Things are of earth, so they want to go down. Things are of water, they want to spread out. Things are of fire, so they go up. And then things are of air, they exist in the air. Um, And so that brings us into purpose. Mm -hmm. Things of earth, their purpose is to go back to earth. Things of water, that's purpose is to spread out. Mm -hmm. Um, Our purpose is to self-transcend, to realize, to self-reflect, to self-correct, so that we can further and further Mm -hmm. better conform to our environment. And we conformity theory and Aristotle's level of understanding of the world. We still participate, participate in the world as if that was true. Mm-hmm. The know, same way, just with different upgraded huh? information. Now we know it's gravity, but yeah. we still don't know what gravity is exactly. Well, even day to day, you're not thinking gravity. You're thinking, I don't want to fall off this curve or fall down those stairs. You're not thinking, oh, gravity. You're not thinking whatever the acceleration equation is. You're just. You right. go down. Yeah. Things that are up go down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not necessarily that's... thinking the parts of me that are Earth want to go down and then, you know, but still. So I think that's roughly where we're at. I think so. So we're going to jump back in now, guys, to John Bravaki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Now that, that sets something out for us. Notice that there is now a a deep connection, that a a deep bonding, as I say, between your understanding of your understanding and your understanding of the world. So, let's try and put this together. This is a view of the world that totally makes sense of your actions. This is a world organized according to Right, purpose, things are moving on purpose, things are trying to get where they belong. The structure of the world is very, very similar to the structure of your right, the, the meaningful structure of your experience. So this view basically, if you'll allow me a term that uh, I've crafted with uh, Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic in our book, this right basically makes the external world an arena. An arena is a place that's organized such that you know how you can act in it. It makes sense to you. You know where things belong, what actions are appropriate, how to measure and calibrate your performance. And I don't mean just your physical performance, also your intellectual performance. If you are a football right player and you go into a football arena, things are organized in such a way that you know intimately how to be involved and how to interact. You can conform, listen to my language, you can conform to that situation very powerfully. Right? This, right, is how you become an agent. To be an agent is, right, to be capable of pursuing your goals. It's to be able to organize your cognition and your behavior so that your actions fit the situation. They fit the environment. 
So what you have when you have a worldview is you've got this agent and arena coupling. Aristotle is explaining to you how you become an agent, how you know and structure yourself to act accordingly, and then he's telling you how the world is right, organized, cosmos, so that you can meaningfully interact within it. And these two, right, there's a process here of co-identification. The identity of this is determined by and determines the identity of this. And the identity of this is determined by and determines this. So the professional football player is a particular kind of agent. They're a football player, and they go into an arena. The arena allows them to be a football player. It affords them. Then being a football player makes sense of why this part of the world is structured the way it is. They co-identify. The identity as an arena and the identity as the agent co-identify. Now, this is important. We need to stop here and be a little bit more, take a little bit more care. Because I want to introduce an idea to you, this co-identification, because this is something you're doing all the time. Right? You're always assuming an identity. I'm doing it now. I'm assuming the identity of someone giving a talk, and I'm assigning an identity to everything around me. Everything is right, has the meaning of how it's facilitating and affording my talk, and even you as the audience have been assigned a particular identity. I'm always assigning an arena and assuming agency, and they are co-defining together. That, that is an existential mode, to use a term. This process by which you are co-identifying agency and arena so that they fit together and make sense of each other, and you get a coherent and functioning worldview, that's your existential mode. And of course, it matters really greatly to you. We're going to come back to this later. This is an idea from Clifford Geertz. This is an idea that he used to talk about religion in general, and we'll see about that uh, later. But what I want to point out, because a similar idea was also proposed by other people like Buber and by Fromm, and although they also said there were important connections to religion, they didn't, uh, they didn't identify just with religion. These existential modes, they are meta-meaning relations. What does that mean? If you do not have the agent-arena relationship, then none of your particular actions have meaning. If I put the tennis player into the football arena, it's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Things aren't, right? The, the tennis player can do all they want and it doesn't make any sense. The environment is like, what? What's going on? That's absurd. Notice that word. We're going to come back to it. Right? Unless the coupling works, your individual ag- actions and projects of meaning don't work. It's a meta-meaning system because this mode makes possible an entire system of meanings. It means right, that the throwing the ball has a meaning for the football player. Right? The catching the ball, the running here, all of these different things take on their meaning because an agent-arena relationship has been set up. You're doing it right now. 
you have, a, right, you have assumed a particular identity, you've assigned an identity to me, and within that existential mode, everything you're doing and I'm doing take on whatever meaning they have. This is very, very important. This idea of your existential mode being a meta-meeting relationship and that what it does is it's an instance, a particular way of enacting this worldview relationship. Geertz, Geertz calls this, this thing we're seeing in Aristotle, the way you get this mutual support, mutual intelligibility, not as a static relation, but as an unfolding process. He calls this worldview attunement. So one of the things that's really important to you, right, is that your existential mode, the way in which you are creating co-identifications of agent, agent and arena, actually fit into a process of worldview attunement. If you don't have a worldview with worldview attunement, then ultimately you can't get this going. You will be like the tennis player trying to play tennis in the football arena. You will start to experience your existence as absurd. It won't make any sense to you. Now that matters, right? Because one of the ways in which the meaning crisis expresses itself is in people saying that they feel existence is absurd. People often express the opposite of absurdity when they articulate that they have a meta-meaning, existential mode that affords a functioning worldview attunement, which gives them ways in which they are co-creating with the world the agent-arena relationship. So notice what this has done, what Aristotle's done here that's so powerful He's given us a way, a language, of articulating a connection between what we often don't see a deep connection between our projects of trying to intellectually understand the world and our existential projects of trying to feel like we fit in and belong in a meaningful fashion. That's what's so beautiful about Aristotle. He's given an integrated account of both of these. Now, for many of us today, we don't find that clear, consonant connection. We have a scientific worldview, a view of how things are, how we understand things given our science. But one of the most common complaints of that worldview is it gives us no existential guidance. It doesn't tell us how to make our lives meaningful. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. I hope you guys don't mind. I'm actually going to rewind it like 20 seconds. Yeah, let's get that, that last part 20 again seconds because, in there. Yeah, my mind wandered just for a second. I missed part that I was trying to hear. Let me see here.
Now, for many of us today, we don't find that clear consonant connection. We have a scientific worldview, a view of how things are, how we understand things given our science. But one of the most common complaints of that worldview is it gives us no existential guidance. It doesn't tell us how to make our lives meaningful. Doesn't tell. Let me go back a little bit further now. Two things that existential mode that affords a functioning worldview attunement, which gives them ways in which they are co-creating with the world the agent arena relationship, which is the opposite of absurd. So, mm-hmm. notice what this has done. What Aristotle's done here that's so powerful. He's given us a way, a language of articulating a connection between what we often don't see a deep connection between our projects of trying to intellectually understand the world and our existential projects of trying to feel like we fit in and belong in a meaningful that fashion. World in which we That's what's so beautiful about Aristotle. He's given an integrated account of both of these. Awesome. Okay. That's what I wanted to make sure I was fully yeah. capturing. Yeah, that, that was the up note after the you know absurdity. Yeah, man. Okay, so that, that is very helpful in our attunement to reality and deepening that sense of meaning, decreasing that sense of absurdity that can occur, especially in times of rapid destabilization such as now. Yeah, the insight of of the the insight of ha- the requirement of having a worldview to gain meaning, to enter this arena, to enter this agent arena relationship. You know, I won't say that I, you know, definitively ever thought about it like that. Like, there's always an inkling where it's like, you know, you have to have a worldview of some variety. We don't want to be nihilist, but to really like that you have to have a worldview in order to enter the arena and have that agent relationship have meaningful engagement that with the defines world, that gives a sense of belonging and yes well and it, defines, it defines reality it defines you yeah, and helps you, you define the world because mm-hmm. you yes. can't really understand the world until you can conform to the world so that's a you relationship with mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm it's yeah. interesting that we have the word conformist for when you over-exaggerate. Well, you you put, do that without the questioning, without the self-correction, without the continued reframing and self-transcendence. Well, put practices. the ist at the end of it and it becomes bad. <laughs> Almost all <laughs> ists are bad. Yeah. Quite often. Um, well, yeah, So that deep bonding between your understanding of the world and, and, and understanding of the world in general. So your understanding of yourself and your understanding of reality and bringing them into accord. The agent-arena relationship, as he termed it. So the the conforming, the thinking, being side of us, and then, the, and then being in relation with the geocentric, as he saw it back then. But it's well, still, the sense you of know, reality see, with the seeing cosmos. the world as a central thing. And so being an active yeah. agent in the arena. And not just the world like the yes. planet we're on, but the, the, the yes. universe, the it's world. It's deeply connected to our sense oh. of meaningfulness in life. And what it does is this that, that relationship between the two, They it it produces an environment and condition to actualize yes. our goals. Yes, so it that's enables next... us to be capable of pursuing goals, 
sure. better fitting to the environment. Well, and the arena has, like we talked last episode. So we feel anxious if we're not meeting these survival yeah. needs. Yeah, these. And, and uh, we talked last episode about constructive and uh, destructive mm-hmm. uh, constraints. Oh, yes, yes. So the arena is filled with constructive, like, you know, mm-hmm. like you mentioned with, like, tennis. You don't have a tennis player on a football field because the, the – so how we govern our arena? The the limiting restraints for our agent. Yeah, yeah. the the limiting. So your limiting restraints put you within an area that you can work within, and this is this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We have a certain set of rules, and then the, you know, the the constructing constraints, if you will, are like okay, well, within these sets of rules, how do I improvise within them? You know, like playing music with people is very much like that too. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, we have verses and we have choruses and we have bridges and we have breaks and we have intros and outros well the reason why we have those words is well the words are constraints and so Mm -hmm. verses are kind of like this so it's it's a word that you can cue into and be like okay that has this constraint this constraint this constraint this is limiting this is limiting but actually this allows me to do this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. constraints and possibilities at once yeah and and no wonder you know without like if the if the geocentric world view is the arena and the Pre-air conforming style. agent mm-hmm. is the agent mm-hmm. um so for now now we have this new cosmos that we're trying to grapple with this new understanding of humankind's place in reality. And that's so much at, at the root of the problems that we're facing yeah, right well, now, we're, the underlying we're anxiety. Literally going into absurdity. Yes, the absurdity. Literally into absurdity. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of that is this, you know. Um, uh, yes, yes, us coming into conformity with our environment and creating that agent arena coupling the, the so co- we can most meaningfully interact. The co-identification. Yes, the co- co-identification. Yeah. And we're doing this all the time. We're assuming g- an identity and assigning um, identity. We're, we're assuming an arena, what's proper in this situation, and then we, that is further enforcing how we assume the identity. So this is our existential mode. Yeah. It's how a- we exist. It's interesting that or modes, as, really. assume and the arena and assign an agency, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. they fit together. Because, you know, like, well, in order to assign something, you have to have characteristics that will also to... It's place and time be and connected an agent. with astronomy, it seems. Yeah, and, and like, with you assume certain things about the environment you're in and you assign then what... What's going to happen mm-hmm. within that? As a, you know, like a, you know, agency gets, you know, is a word we tend to use and not think about it. But you know, what is it to have agency? Mm-hmm. Well, it mm-hmm. means that you can assign what is and what isn't within your own parameters in yes, the environment so you're being that you're in. Agent in that environment. And if you keep doing yeah. that, well, you assign parameters to the environment, and the <laughs> environment is like, okay, well, you. yeah, and then you inform the environment yeah. and it reinforms you, so it highlights. It, they're highlighting each other, the agent and the arena. Yeah. How far the player can f- throw the ball it's based on how big the arena is and the agent throwing the ball as well and who he's throwing it to and how far and how accurate he is is all based upon the preset rules of that arena. Mm-hmm. 
and it's so the existential mode the word mode mm-hmm. is interesting to me because like so a mode you have like modes on your microwave and it's a set of things that it does and mm-hmm. certain parameters that it does almost, yeah. and then in music you have modes your scales are modes mm. um you have seven of them and modes ways. each mode if you say a mode you can tell what's going to be what what are the spaces going to be between them and then if you you know overlay you know all 12 notes over the seven note mode system you can tell which ones are going to be sharp and flat mm. because of the conditions mm. within that mode yes you know because your yes. defrost mode does a different thing than your beverage mode mm. does too yeah right yeah, it's, it, it, that word sticks out i'm a musician so it's it's mode sticks out that's interesting. And so yeah, these these existential modes are a meta meaning relation. What a meta meaning relation, that, man! That you just described yeah. that was a meta meaning relation. Yeah, and the environment, you know, must mesh the two, mm-hmm. or be meshed meshed with yes. the with the agent. Yes, for us to create a coherent and functional worldview that matters yeah. greatly to us, we must be able to conform accurately to the arena. And so, understanding the arena of reality and existence itself is. Where it really starts to get, you know, like it starts to get heady. It starts to get really, you know, almost psychedelic. Yeah, and, and I get and this interaction between the mm. two unfolding process of worldview attunement. Yeah, it creates an environment for meaning. Yes. You know why yes. is why is the quarterback the quarterback? Well, because he does these things and these things and these things yeah. within this environment. Yeah, Therefore, meaning gives you meaning. So his meaning is to get the ball to what something. what you do gives <laughs> yeah. it more meaning, meaning and it yeah. just keeps, keeps on reciprocally. And that's what we're all trying to find, right, is meaning. Yes. So. Yeah, ways to interact through our worldview. And, and really the and world is, is needing to develop yeah. new worldviews right now. We're having to mm-hmm. come up with a new story, as we've spoken of before. And our relationship to our worldview because, mm-hmm. like, you know, to have a worldview is not a... That's like, true. You just yeah, have really, it. It's a relationship so right with it. Yeah, no, I, I and I feel a sense of a reverence, a sense of wonder, a sense of awe of the beauty, the infinite great mystery that we are a part of as living beings. And I mean, we're, we're lucky to be we're lucky to be alive, cosmos. man. Really, really lucky in this time, in this yeah. place, on this planet. Yeah, that that there is a universe at all, oh, and all man. these stars yeah, right? floating in empty space that happen to have planets close enough to be able to be just in just the right temperate zone for life to grow and exist as it does and gravity isn't too bad on this planet i mean things fall and break i guess maybe a little floatier might be nice but then again i don't know it would feel bu- sturdy uh, yeah I, <laughs> i'd actually amp up the gravity a little bit let's get strong oh know, man you like dragon first. ball z going into that you know hyperbaric time chamber or whatever that they had where they could make the gravity heavier and they could be in there for like months but only a week goes what by saturn i mean yeah yeah martian would be less but uh yeah so <laughs> he brings up girt's and Gertz, Buber, and Fromm. And worldview attunement. Yeah, the idea of worldview attunement, meta-meaning relations, I think is coming from these I, I like these that guys. word attunement, because, like, what is it mm-hmm. to tune something? Yeah, right? To dial in. It's to dial it in and get it into form. Do the other thing is when something is out of tune, yeah. you hear it, and you can hear, like, you know, if it's a hearing thing, you can hear and a dissonance and then to get things into attunement or to get them into harmony mm-hmm. and harmony are when things work, mm-hmm. you know, their best and most optimally. 
Yes. So that word attunement, yes. you know, it's 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 to accord. And worldview attunement is an action in itself. You know, you're attuning your worldview. You mm-hmm. know, so it's not just something you have or something that you do once and you forget about it. It's like you know, it's something you that we continuously. Well, that cycle inform. between the cycle, yeah. like every episode, there and seems to be another us, cycle and that we inform yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there's this sense of disconnect when. Things seem out of alignment. They seem absurd. But we have these ways of co-creating with our environment to be able to optimize um, our capacity to interact. And, yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful dance, that coupling that happens between the agent and the arena. There's infinite room to explore and to play. I can understand we why can keep people, on creating new arenas, new I, stories. I can understand why the mythos of like gods watching us, like we're on a big playing board, like with, with this type of understanding and a well, po- the polytheistic. Sun being out there and yeah, you can't and even you know, stare at the like, sun so bright. You've, you know, you've got your gods sitting up on a high mountain, watching down, watching the the people move around, and you could imagine it like a game board. And actually, we've, we've made games mm-hmm. about this, you know, like Go and chess yeah, and yeah. checkers and all other types of stuff like that. You've got a your environment, you got your arena, and then you got your agents, and they're doing their well, just Sim maximize City. that and have a polytheistic understanding of the universe. Right, and then you've yeah. got the gods that all have their own little characteristics, which are just their influence on the world, or mm-hmm. as we would understand it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, don't piss off Poseidon and then go sailing. Yes. So yes. it's basically don't piss into the wind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Socrates and, yeah. uh, yeah, Socrates made the mistake of giving the gods moral attributes that were like high level embodiments of moral virtues. Well, ins- yeah, instead of just and being. And that was really, really controversial. Well, that, that, that released the limits killed. of human. human he was coming up with more, transcendent ideals for us. Yeah, using beyond God's our and, own. Allowing so. the gods to become archetypes for us of ultimate levels of being, higher levels, and to give us yeah. room to further improve ourselves. Yeah, well, you to, give us room, we are like yeah. water. We will fill it. Mm-hmm. We will fill the cup. Mm-hmm. We will conform to it. Yeah, it feels <laughs> like Aristotle was starting to feel into the destabilization occurring, what had, what had occurred before, and what could come again in the uh, competing worldviews even during his time. And so that, that idea to be willing to self-correct, self-reflect, and transcend and reform patterns over and again to better adapt and inform the environment around us and allow ourselves to be informed. It's a really noble ideal. It's, it, it's exciting to learn about how we still have these words, potential and promise, to this day because of what happened pre-Socratic and then through Socrates, Aristotle, and into uh, or Plato into Aristotle. And now I think Ravek is about to get into a little bit of the East before we turn to the West oh, yes. again, and we're going to kind of bounce back and forth. On our journey, we, we are now going East. Yes. It almost feels like we're traveling around the world, too. Like, you know, those old, uh, like, PBS documentaries. <laughs> right, come, yeah. Come on during yeah. the day, and it's somebody just going somewhere, and you get tidbits of their, like, local lore and right. other things. Man, yeah, yeah. Man, I remember. Damn. We just learned about, PBS like, the Bronze Age and Mesopotamia. Yeah, yeah. And now we're 
We need like some fancy classical music in the background and somebody with a really pleasing voice to introduce us. And, right. You know, like they yeah. had and everything was super calm David and chill. <laughs> you know, if only. All right, Mr. Bravaki, take us away. Is, was that everything? I think we got everything. Um, well, okay, yeah. So enough. there at the end, you got, you know, we got a little, like at the end of that part he was talking about, it kind of got a little sad because, you know, we've, become so scientific in our mindset mm-hmm. and we've got stuck in yeah. that and that just that portion of it doesn't create meaning no. yeah well we understand how the components of the world work and we can put people on the moon and we can put all that stuff but we still ain't any closer to finding out what wisdom is and how, give to, us how to use of meaningful it and, connection. Yeah, yeah and how to be actualized agents mm-hmm. in this arena that is that we do have a lot of understanding. We understand this world very well. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's, we are so rapidly accelerating mm-hmm. in our innovation, our capacity for technology growing exponentially. Um, so we, we became in touch with the whole world and all of our various cultures clashing and intermingling and intermeshing. Mm-hmm. We've spoken of this. Uh, all of this has happened so quickly. Now the arena is constantly changing before us. Just look at how fast computer graphics and the internet has progressed over the last 20 years where video games have gone you know if you're you know anyone that's out there that's ever played the old original like Mm. pong or atari knows how far video games and our capacity for uh high tech has grown in very very short time yeah i think the the main component of the the arena changing or yeah. So now we're really getting to know each well, other it's, very close. Yeah, it's, it's time. Fast. It's fast. The game has sped up. That is and the it's component. And the speed of connection and interaction with the environment and with one another, too. So we're supercharging our collective sense-making capacities. But if we're not aware that we're doing that, then we might be making mad sense of things. And so <laughs> being able to develop our wisdom capacities well, so we can... And the thing is, if the only... Well, I won't say the only, but the main component if it's time we then that means we're already armed with the right tools we have and knowledge we that we need from previous thinkers to help us yeah make we just have meaning to be able to get present this. with it so that we can well i think we can do it faster you know like yeah i think i think mm-hmm. maybe in even in a negative sense but i think humans now think and process faster than we used to we don't ponder anymore. well we're also bringing in all of these mindfulness yeah. practices from the east yeah. right now and so we're deepening our sense oh. of presence that we can be present and better attend to this moment and not miss the mark so much because we have to be able to rapidly attenuate and attune ourselves to this rapidly changing environment as the ground shifts between our feet and our civilizations are shaken under the weight of so much uh, social uh, discord and we're having to make meaning of of life again after having destroyed very much our belief in the old gods, at least our in mass collective uh, sense of these higher ideals, these ways of being and feeling at one with the environment, like the environment really was something that had its own consciousness to it. Like there's a, like God is in everything kind of sense of reality. Um, the absolute is behind all things sense of reality yeah so our our science our materialistic science that we could say has 
can't explain cause the disconnect it can't explain it can it can it, say how things are it can what they are how they're how they're made how they come well, together it can explain why it why the earth goes around the sun and stays that but it can't understand can't the purpose of that can't tell you how to be or why yeah, yeah and, and like that we've well, you need a very compelling reason for that and not to not to be cliche but it's we've lost our yeah. purpose yeah in so the I purpose within why things we, happen we can still you know agnostics atheists out there if you don't believe in anything yeah. We can still have a sense of reverence and wonder for this great mystery that we all exist in together, the in infinite nature of this cosmos, the endlessness of it, its seeming omnipresence. How did this all just begin? We still don't know. So that I mean, we probably we can have never a sense will. of wonder for that. And you can have a yeah. sense of wonder for something as simple as a tree or a flower, well, the wind blowing. Oh, that's a wonderful word. The sense of wonder. As in, you just sit there and you wonder, and you're like, man, how'd that thing get so big? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, and to be in awe of it all, to sense deep into that beauty. Huh. Another word, to be in awe. Ah, when, when, you, wonder, when you wonder and you go, ah. And to be in the flow state is to be in a long yeah, awe, yeah, yeah, is yeah. Baker described it. Yeah. And then there's flabbergasted, and I haven't broken down that word yet, but I like flabbergasted. it. I find myself wow. flabbergasted quite often. It's almost often. like it's taking the wind out of you. You're so flummoxed by it. Yeah, that's another <laughs> one. Let's stop it, stop it. <laughs> ah, no! <laughs> All right, guys. I'm going to jump back in here now. Now, for many of us today, we don't find that clear consonant connection. We have a scientific worldview, a view of how things are, how we understand things given our science, but one of the most common complaints of that worldview is it gives us no existential guidance. It doesn't tell us how to make our lives meaningful. I wanted to propose to you a term for talking about this set of things, where you have a worldview that is demonstrating on an ongoing, reliable fashion worldview attunement, and so that it is constantly affording existential modes in which agent arena relationships are unfolding and blossoming naturally so that the person is not experiencing absurdity, and so the per person is constantly experiencing a deep connectedness between their intellectual projects of making sense of the world and their existential projects of finding meaning and belonging and fittedness within it. I'm going to call that a nomological order. Nomological order it comes from nomos, right? Law. This is what makes the universe law-like, not, not just in our current sense of scientific law, but in the sense that it's a cosmos for us. It's a cosmos in which there's deep convergence and consonance between our best attempts to scientifically explain the world and our deepest endeavors to existentially dwell within it. When we have that, when we have those two together, we have a nomological order. As the nomological order breaks down, of course, then we start to confront absurdity and we start to lose a sense of how we fit in and how we belong. So, part of what we can take from, part of how we can understand the Axial Age heritage 
part of the way we can understand what it's telling us about meaning is this idea of a nomological order. To have a meaningful life is to have a life that is situated within a nomological order and a tuned worldview that is reliably generating existential modes that are consonant with our best scientific understanding. So I want to pause now in the discussion of the Axial Age in Greece and in ancient Israel. We will return uh, to ancient Israel um, after we complete our survey of the Axial Age. But I'd now like to move to another place that is uh, a, a, an important locus of the Axial revol uh, Revolution that is having a significant impact on us uh, today. This is something that I mentioned earlier on in this series. We're in the midst of what's been called the mindfulness revolution. One of the ways in which people are responding to the meaning crisis is by an, an intense interest, both existentially and personally, and scientifically in the phenomena of mindfulness. That somehow mindfulness and the cultivation of mindfulness is a way of retrieving the project of cultivating wisdom and self-transcendence and uh, somehow deepening the meaning that we are finding in our lives. And of course, when I talk about mindfulness and mention things like meditation and contemplation, our thoughts should turn, of course, to India and the axial revolution that was taking there. Um, and the particular form that uh, revolution took that is impacting the West and the meaning crisis, as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, was in the generation of Buddhism and the set of practices around it. Now, this is a very complex topic. We're not going to do it all at once right now. It's going to unfold as we move through the series. But I want to talk about the Axial Revolution in India. I want to talk about m mindfulness. And uh, I want to talk about what, what it is as a psychotechnology, how it's associated with wisdom and self-transcendence. And I want to begin the discussion of the nature of enlightenment and why enlightenment is largely a project of trying to deal with threats of meaning in one's life. So, just the way, I mean, it's only analogous in this way, so don't draw too much, but in the way Socrates was the embodiment of the axial revolution in ancient Greece, I think you can see Siddhartha Gautama as the embodiment of the axial revolution in India. As I mentioned of course, the Axial Revolution is being driven there by similar kinds of processes. There's, there's coinage and there's alphabetic literacy and other things like this developing. But there's specific psychotechnologies that seem to have come to the fore, and the reasons for that are very complex. I would recommend taking a look at Karen Armstrong's book, uh, The Great Transformation, because she tries to tease out why did psychotechnologies of mindfulness become so prominent in, in ancient India? And, and I'm not going to go into that history, but she gives a fairly coherent explanation about sort of historical, cultural factors that generated it. What I want to, to instead is start talking about Siddhartha as a way of, again, giving us a doorway into the Axial Revolution in India. So Siddhartha, right, it's, it's all of these figures, right, Socrates, and Siddhartha, and later when we talk about Jesus, I, I, I mean, 
trying to talk about, well, who, what's the historical, this is, this is a quixotic endeavor, trying to somehow peel away and separate them from their legacy is largely a, um, a project that you can only pursue to a certain degree. So I cannot, and I, I don't think anybody can say with certainty, this is what the historical Siddhartha was doing. And I'm not going to endeavor to try and separate the myth, and I told you how I use the word myth, uh, from the, hist- the history. I'm going to let them still remain seamlessly together because that's precisely how they are making an impact on the West. So the story goes like this. Siddhartha, uh, what, when Siddhartha was born, his father had all of the sages and wise men come to his birth, and it was prophesied, uh, foretold in sort of an oracle fashion, that uh, the boy had one of two possible futures. One is he would be a, a great king. Um, or the other was he would enter religious life and be a really important religious figure. The king, being what all kings are, uh, chose uh, the former. He wanted his son, of course, to be a great king. And he decided in order to do this, he would try and remove all of the things that might trigger Siddhartha from pursuing a religious life, a life devoted to the ideals of the Axial Revolution. So what do you do if you do not want someone to go through the Axial Revolution? Well, you try and give them all the benefits of the pre-Axial world. You try and give them all the benefits of power and prosperity. So the story goes that the king rigged things so that Siddhartha never saw anything distressing. He was always surrounded by beautiful women, correct amount of food, everything that he wanted. And we can sort of just um, take that as it is, or we can step back and do something that you should always do with things that have a mythological component. Remember, myths are not irrelevant stories about the past. They're attempts to get you to engage right now with perennial ongoing patterns. So I want to to talk about what the palace represents. A good way of getting at this, right, is Marcus Aurelius' famous quote that, and this is how it goes, it is possible to be happy even in a palace. That tells you how much the Axial Revolution, right, is, right, antithetical to palace life. Now, a way of getting that is to get at a notion, which we're going to come back to later when we talk about Stoics like Marcus Aurelius, drawn from from, and this goes to this idea that I just explained to you, existential mode, that the palace represents a particular existential mode. It's a mythological way of trying to get you to right, experience, not just think about, but activate in your memory a particular existential mode. All right, so we're talking about the palace because we're talking about Siddhartha living in the palace. What does this represent? Fromm talks about two different existential modes that we all face. Again, perennial patterns. They're organized around two different kinds of needs. They're having needs and being needs. So, of course, this mode is called the having mode. It's an existential mode. It's a way in which You make sense of the world and make sense of yourself in this process of co-identification. This is the being mode. Okay, so having needs are needs that are met by having something. These are needs that are met by categorizing things efficiently, 
controlling them effectively. So my understanding of the thing is categorical. I put it in the correct category. Here's a cup. I can it's like all the other cups. It functions like another cup. I can replace it with a cup if this one gets damaged. It really improves my ability to control things. I have this categorical way of representing it, and it's oriented towards me getting very effective, efficient control over things because I need to have water. I need to actually consume it. If I don't, I die. So having being able to categorize, categorize my world, manipulate it and control it so I can get water is very important. That means I relate to things uh, in what Buber, who I also mentioned, called an I-it fashion. An it is uh, an identity something has when it belongs to a category. And so what I'm mostly relying on here is my intelligence, which is my ability to control and manipulate things right, to achieve solving my problems. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with the having mode. You need to have water. You need to have food. You need to have oxygen. The being mode is different. The being needs are not met by having something, they're met by becoming something. So, for example, you need to become mature. Or Aristotle might say you need to become virtuous. It's not met by having something, it's met by becoming, developing. These are developmental needs. According to Fromm, because of that, these are needs that have to do with right, a particular kind of meaning that you're creating for your existence. And so you're not relating to things categorically, but as Collingwood, for example, say, relating to them expressively. Let me show you what I mean with a concrete example. And we're going to come back to these kinds of examples when we talk again about the connections between love and anagoge. Okay? When you're in love with somebody, right, you are engaged right, in a being need. You're trying to, if it's, if it's love, as opposed to just desire or sex, you're trying to become something, and you're trying to afford them becoming something. You're trying to meet your needs of meaning and right, maturity, growth, and development. That's why we pursue love. Right? As opposed, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a prude. Sometimes you just want to have sex with people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you have said, no, what I want here is love. Okay? Now notice that, so I'm in love with this amazing woman, Sarah. Okay? And I'm in this relationship with her, this relationship of mutual development, mutual realization. In fact, that's a, that's a great way of thinking about love. Love is this process, like anagoge, of reciprocal realization. I don't think of, cate- uh, of Sara categorically. Remember how I thought of the cup? This is a good cup because it reminds me of all the other cups that I've ever seen. And I know how to replace this if this one's damaged. And I can control and manipulate it. If I was to say to Sara, you know why I'm with you? Because you remind me of every other woman I've been with. Been with and I could easily replace you if I lose you. And I know how to control and manipulate you. I have not made this relationship better. I pretty much just destroyed it. 
because I don't interact with Sara from the having mode. I don't understand her expressively. I'm not trying to control and manipulate. I'm trying to engage in a process of reciprocal realization. We're going to talk a lot about this when we talk about Gnosis. So my relationship, I don't assume, right, controller, manipulator of an it thing. I have an I-thou relationship with Sara. Right? And here, I'm not trying to solve problems. I'm using my reason because I'm not about trying to get rid of my problems. I'm trying to make meaning. To live in the palace is to try and live everything from the having mode. See, Fromm's, it's not that this is good and this is bad. Fromm's point is we get mixed up. We try to satisfy our being needs within the having mode. We suffer from modal confusion. Think about how much our culture is organized around this because it serves a lot of market interests if I can confuse you if I can get you to try and pursue your being needs within the having mode. You need to be mature. Here's a car you can have. You need to be in love. Here's lots of sex you can have. Notice how we talk about making love but having sex. Modal confusion. Deep existential confusion. And what happens when you're modally confused, right, is but your need for maturity isn't being met by having the car. Your need for love is not being met by having sex. So, You pursue it more. Buy more cars. Purchase more sex. The more, right, the more the corporate world, the market world can get you to try to pursue your being needs from the having mode, the more they can induce modal confusion in you, the more they can sell to you. Being in the palace is a myth in the sense that I'm trying to teach you for modal confusion. It's a myth of trying to live your entire life within the having mode. But here's the thing, because the story continues. Siddhartha leaves the palace. And he leaves the palace in a way that teaches us something about overcoming modal confusion. And in our next time together, We're going to look at how Siddhartha left the palace and we're going to look about we're going to look at what does mindfulness have to do with that? And what does all of this have to do with wisdom and enlightenment? Thank you very much for your time. of those Dis- Disney whistlers back in the day. You know, I could sound like birds and they're like the perfect... If you ever go watch like old cartoons and other stuff like that, listen to the whistlers. That, that stuff's impressive. The whistlers. Listen to the whistlers. Listen to the whistlers sitting on the limbs speaking sounds into the wind. The whistlers.
All right, I guess we're writing a song now. Who are the whistlers? Well, Buddha was one of them. Follow the whistlers. So Buddha, Buddha was to the actual revolution in the East, the figure of Buddha. Uh, Buddha being actu- actually a title um, for the for an enlightened one, mm-hmm. awake, awakened, or awake one. Yeah, and good old Sid. That's who. That's who we call Buddha. Siddhartha. Yeah, right. Siddhartha. Yeah. I, I don't feel like writing it out, so he's Sid in my notes. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. If I was back then and I met him, I'd probably be like, "Hey, Sid, what's going on, man?" <laughs> yeah. Right. He'd be he'd just another dirt person well, like me. See him in the same spot for a while. What's going on, man? You'd probably experience a great peace if you were around old Sid. You see, he was just so in tune. Yes, yeah, so the actual revolution in India, nature of enlightenment. The mindless. The, the psychotechnology to develop the nature of enlightenment was the way that it was being dealt with in the east and he utilized the story of the palace this myth of the palace myth being uh ways to orient to for us to orient to perennial patterns being told in story form perennial patterns being ongoing repeating patterns that exist that are timeless at least for us as humans yeah and you know palace is a really good metaphor for that too because mm-hmm. like Having a palace is more than a castle or a keep. A palace is something that mm. you know fulfills all your desires. Oh, if you ha- if you actually want for something, something yeah, all your having wrong. needs are met, and, and it confuses you too. You know, it's yeah. it's the Hotel California effect as well. You know, so mm. yeah, you, everything seems real nice and awesome, but then you just feel this hollow thing at your core that's not being fulfilled from being mm. in it. Mm. Yeah. That's that's how mm. you can tell something's a cult or not. Yeah, something's it's, out of phase. You know, as yeah. far as religion goes, if it's a cult, you you, you don't have that mm. sense of fulfillment because the goal of a cult is not to actually get you there. No, yeah. no, <laughs> yeah. At least it's to get somebody, you know, somewhere. But yeah, particularly would be for personal interests and things that um, the wise men of the past warned us against because they're not helping us in that collective pursuit of improving our worldview together, becoming ever more in relation, existence in one another. The modern day palace right now, you could, you know, the palace is kind of crumbling, but like you could say like the social media thing where it's likes and views have replaced um, actual like being needs, like being with your friends and doing things and thinking about things and talking and mm-hmm. existing with people mm-hmm. but you know i've got you know ten thousand likes on this and then so many replies and this that or the other and thumbs up and a plus rating and all that stuff there's a lot of good like dystopian shorts that are uh people are making little videos out of that are pretty cool that are yeah we were talking about, about mirror actually last week yeah. as well and dust has a lot of good ones too oh, there you go shout out to dust whatever you guys are doing they got a youtube i like it independent uh cool creators that like to make short stories and check them out them. dust yeah but uh yeah so the palace we have now it like that we are confronted with in in modern reality is well these very things we're using to communicate as well 
you know, just because you come from a palace doesn't mean you have to continuously live in the palace. You can leave. Yeah. And you can go seeking. Well, your being needs aren't being met by yeah. just fulfilling yeah. the having needs. So the having needs are things that we can easily categorize and inter interact with and control. So like cups is a category. So I know how to interact with a cup. Yeah, I've interacted with cups before. Most yeah, of the right. time, it's okay. Sometimes I knock them over. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it's funny how we have that relation, <laughs> yeah. that, mem that yeah, relational yeah. memory yeah, with yeah. the cup. I'm like, oh, that's right. I've knocked these things over before. Be careful. Well, like I wrote down some be words here to describe this this having, and it's um, to be full of care is to be fully present. The more present you are, the better you're picking up your cup. You're not spilling. Um, categorical, like you mm -hmm. know. Yeah, categorical ways of because like you have things and you can put them on your shelves mm -hmm. and you it's put them in little I categories it relation that's yeah, it. yeah yeah i it and that's mm -hmm. why it's not polite to call people it no but it's important having needs are yeah. important you need water to survive well yeah like you know. well you, and you know to a certain extent you do need to have like some of the nicer things food, in life too you relations you know something yeah. comfortable mm -hmm. some yeah, type of whatever security the baser yeah. needs yeah yeah but to be able to get to higher level actual actualization but like what he brought up with uh, that relationships. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful the, the way he said that um, the difference between making love and having sex, that we even say it that way. Yeah. shows right there that we know the difference. Like innately, we know the difference. Relating expressively with life, it's art. Art comes in here. Relationships, love comes in here. This reciprocal realization that is definitely not categorical when you're with a loved one. It's meant by becoming. Well, it's not a category. It's a, it's a process. Relationship yes, with it's life a, or with person. It's a process, not a category. Yes, um, yes, yes. Developing virtue. So our development needs being met. Our, our everything there is happening in the mo in the being mode, and reciprocal realization is something that we're going to get into more. But he related that with love. That help that happens with wisdom practice and with human beings in general. We have this capacity for reciprocal realization with one another and with our environments. And when these modes are out of phase with one another, and we're not fully engaged as our agents in our arenas, we experience existential modes feeling disrupted. Mm. Yeah. We experience the absurdity. And we, we open our... the ground being pulled underneath our feet or destabilized. And we're opening ourselves to the, to the danger of being manipulated, mm -hmm. like, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, like marketing, for instance. He mentions how marketing is, is uh, well, so you, is taking you want advantage to be a man, of the fact right? that you can mix you up people's modal confusion. You can yeah. mix, you can yeah. give them modal confusion, and you can tell them that they can serve their being needs by having this thing. So you want to feel more confident. You want to be a, a well, better per blah, 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 blah. A lot of Get the self-help stuff and all that and other so stuff. Literally that falls, like, yeah. yeah, taking advantage of this modal confusion that can occur in human beings to market and to sell and to sell us. That's And hey, you know, if you fall for it, you fall for it. You yeah, well, better learn next time. Yeah, there's honest sales out there, but there's also – you can certainly take advantage well, of, of this – understanding of psychology but you know i'd mm -hmm. rather not sell you a car if i'm aiming to like make you feel more like a man i'd probably be like like p pick up a hobby and take well, care a, of things i don't know that's what trucks are for <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah not just any trucks but like every year they're bigger and you know what dude 
you can see this in how trucks have been designed. Uh, if you're actually like, taking that thing off roading though, I get it. It's fun. Yeah, but, but like just just, just uh, back in the day, dude, just that, being loud just to feel bigger. That's a little well. Bit even like you can probably. you can see that in the normal F one fifty, right? If you look at the old you know the old F one fifties, they're a smaller truck, and you, you could get into the engine compartment with the engine. And now you got this thing that you can't even like see above it. You know, I'm a pretty tall dude, and like these F one fifties now, I'm like, how do you what? Like what is this? And just the truck naturally grew, kind of and race, now yeah. like you can't get in the engine compartment with it, and it's filled with a bunch of crazy stuff. But yeah, it's it's, but you know, like, what do you do? Well, you learn how it works, and you learn how to use it, and use it in a conscious way that's not for manipulation in the sense of treating people like the cup, but that's still, it, but yes. helping. You know, networks grow. Like mm. networking as as is a network is a great beads. being, yeah. being end of things. Like networking with people. You know, it's like well, like say with like, um, you know, what's that? Jeremy from the quartering. Uh, he's got that coffee brand coffee thing, and he's paying for mm. videos on like everybody's channel, like and, and doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, Hilarious. it's great marketing. He's you know apparently doing pretty all right for selling coffee. That's called coffee brand coffee, which is genius. Uh, you know, coffee brand coffee. Yeah, you gotta love it. Um, and in doing that, yeah, he's making it. But also, he's networking with people. Like mm-hmm. he's giving money to people. Okay, I can sponsor you. You want to run? You know, mm. yeah. You know, yeah, or yeah. however all that yeah, works. Affiliate, but sell the coffee. Then you're. I thought about yeah, sell, selling but, that coffee on on the podcast. But, we might have to contact Jeremy. Over yeah, there. that'd be interesting. Um, but you know that creates a growing relationship kind of thing opposed if to fulfilling my needs kind of thing it's got, it's got to be fair i'm a cop for I, you, man. and I, i'm a coffee well, snob too care of, so yeah, I'm i so, want something legit i'm sorry jeremy but if your ca- coffee's garbage i cannot in good conscience like sell that to anybody yeah, it's better be fungus free brother yeah well unless it's one of those like specialty that's ones called, that's been that's like asking for a lot with coffee though man that's yeah. a lot of extra screening a lot of extra work yeah it's typically yeah but yeah, it, 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 the the growing mean? relationship, the progressional relationship is you can you can use the the need based thing, you know, like say like, well, to temporary state like a you, know, you can avoid sadness, you can you can take things, you can drink, you can do this, you can do that to avoid depressions and things, but they remain unresolved. Yeah, that having. Um, mode is not fulfilling the being mode the being mode seeks to transcend self-reflect self-correct self-realize further evermore and become a evermore yeah uh, well engaged active agent in its environment so the i thou relationship that we wish to have with life i and thou it's like this yeah. oneness reciprocal kind of re- you know like when we're in love with somebody and we're making love um this is what gives us a reason and makes meaning for us in life. Our being mode, our being needs. So to be able to relate expressively, to reciprocally realize with somebody else or with life and to be in that active agent arena relationship. Well, yeah, you have public. to have that worldview. So like yeah. I was thinking about... So the... This is completing the circuit with that uh, Kabbalist idea we were talking about in a previous episode consciously mm-hmm. being fully attending to the moment the, the, this, this is all about the receiving the of a gift is the giving of the not gift. missing the yeah. mark but being so the more fully present you are the more clear and aware and true you are to the moment 
and to the arena that you are in as an active aware agent, the more in that state of communion and oneness and flow and reciprocal realization what one can be in and that just seems to ratchet up and that's what we call enlightenment and you have to have very clear you know information like i, I don't want to say rules but like you know laws like if you will the uh, that one word what was it um nomological order yeah no, nomological words. you know the yeah. law like, like the cosmos of gravity or something but yeah, even more it, than that and not law like lawyer law but like law there's it, no this but like need, laws of yeah science. so like but they have to be clear like they like if you had a football game and in the laws of the game the rules of the game were not clear then what kind of Absolutely. game are you playing so even so interpersonally with relationships with people you know we we all hear the stereotypical advice you know you need to have clear boundaries and all that stuff but yeah it's actually kind of true but you grow and you adapt with other people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the boundaries always kind of shift and change a little bit. They don't, you know, they shouldn't break, but the arena changes, you know, it's like, it's growth, it's life. It's yeah. not just a B yeah. to C it's a B, but to C that leads back to the a, but then sometimes goes back to the C and maybe to the B and then there's the D and E and F and then it goes back to that. And it just, yeah. And each A, B, and A, C, and B, C, and B, A, and so on yeah. and so forth are, are branching off into different... And circling back, like further right and back growing, into growing, growing into and larger yeah. and larger holistic pattern. So it gets, it gets psychedelic. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like, the psychi- like it, it's, it's no wonder that... Co-identification the, with the environment well, we, increases we, our we sense of We draw these meaning. beautiful psychedelic-looking things and all these things... And they're attractive to and, us. And, like, during mm-hmm. our psychedelic things, but then also when you get down to, like, the matter of the universe or how to, like, organize thoughts or how n- numerological patterns mm-hmm. um, uh, exhibit themselves. I don't know what to call it. You know, they, yeah. they just are. Yeah, but imitating them and emulating them is very yeah. – it's, it's a turn-on for us. We well, we like charges us. And it's all tied together. And, yeah, it's art, you know, music. It's all and from trip to trip, you know, with certain psychedelics, it, people have it. reliable, like you know, third person be like, yeah, I've experienced that. You know, like you, you know the, the 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 fractal pattern of, that you see. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, the, the people geometric can, people have seen that, or like when you get into like DMT and they talk about like the you know gestures and all the other like archetypical whatever's out there. There's sure what that Guy is. And spirits. And alien spirits what that is is you have the primary source mm-hmm. is it reliable in which in this case if you have a proper shaman and, and like you're going through that experience then that's setting you up sober if you will but in the inverse hmm. so that would be the first and then the second would be the environments right so okay i see this setting, I, I don't know I see the psycho clown or whatever and then the third is are there others that can reliably in sound minds uh, reciprocate what happened and tell, you know, oh, that's tell the same story for sure so Even with the dmt elves and i think i think that's why yeah i think that's characters. why there seems to be some truth behind the psychedelic experiences because we can replicate it get a person in a state give them a certain amount of something in, in a comfortable environment they can reliably describe an environment that other people can describe 
having their own experience. So, like, there's so a lot the of extra people... dimensional entities <clears throat> are perhaps at least real on some some real, or at least level. how we understand whatever that is, whatever that is, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of different that's. So you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's rare. It's, I think it's. It's rare that people meet entities on psychedelics unless you're on the high levels. But sure, of people. But people can DMT be like, "Well, I saw the fractal pattern." Very high like levels this. of mushrooms, or or, or uh, ayahuasca, or something. But yeah. but but typically, certainly, that sense of interconnection and oneness is yeah, and that that's what happens apparent. every single time. It's experiential. For yeah, um, it's, it feels realer than real, and there's this sense of yeah, interconnection and oneness with everything and everyone that is beyond just intellectualization. It's it's something that is is deeper than the sense of as deep as the sense of home. It almost seems like if 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 something that is a chemical, which a chemical is a physical thing, like at, at you know at the end of the day, a chemical is comprised of a bunch of things that have shape. Sure. That interact all with the, the food shape we eat that made of chemicals. In, interact with the shape in our brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So our brain is this tool that biology has figured out how to make that can interact with other physical shapes to have a reliable experience that can help further our understanding and you know wrap around so it's it's not just for some reason life just wants to grow and evolve and yeah. exist and keep going and it wants better tools so it keeps reproducing so it's like, itself better and better and better because our brain hasn't changed in like 200,000 years or so so yeah the, the we've developed a lot of tools yeah. to use the same brain yeah. Now, brain, oh, yeah, brain has been brain. developing for how long has life been developing? Really, the sense of brain, nervous system has been developing yeah. to get to this point where we nervous can self-reflect yeah. and mm -hmm. you know eventually move into the stars, if you will. But like, yeah, the back to the stars from whence we came. Well, hey, if you're an atheist, you can you can put um, the sense of purposes, biology. And DNA want to progress and spread as far as it can and become the best in the environments it can, so it can yes. continue to spread. Excels when it can live. So in that's the states. purpose of why yes. we're developing Create the minds we have for life to live in. Be stewards of life. Yeah, it's yeah, the miracle. Yeah, yeah. we are the miracle, and we're interdependent on us. So you can't you mm -hmm. can't have human life without a vast variety of different kinds of life. Yes. Or you have to be really good at simulating what. Yes. life does it's hard to care about one another unless we feel like there is something transcendent that connects all of us that there is a a shard of that transcendent source within all shining within every human being the idea that one should be considered innocent until proven guilty mm -hmm. is an, is uh, an ideal that we picked up from this ideal of something transcendent that unites and connects all of us well and functionally speaking it um it's it really works because you know like mm -hmm. if you had a if you there's not really in progression any progression of a society where it's well you're guilty and we're just gonna kill you off and you're like you have to prove your own innocence that doesn't really work because, well, you're you're already dead or ostracized or whatever once the accusation is made. Really? Whereas innocence, like, innocence, mm. like, you have to prove the guilt opposed to innocence tempers the people so they yes. can't just automatically... Allows us time to Yeah, which is really useful to keep societies happens, together yeah. because we don't just go murdering so ourselves to death. we can make the most rational 
decision possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, most reasonable. It slows people down. It's like okay, well, yeah. if you can't, you know, if you can't prove the guilt, yeah. which takes because we got to keep in line with that sense of meaningful reason. Yeah, in yeah. Relation with our environment and with one another. Otherwise, it all just goes to shit. So, so what? Hey, do we but do chick rose flowers. Is, is very much you know, the question. That, it's a cycle. Yeah, it is. It's just another cycle. Yeah. Things get built up beautifully, and then they eventually go to shit, and that shit mm-hmm. grows the plants and the trees, and then the peoples and the societies out of it. You know, like hu- humanity Being has moved. always been forced into. Well, everything fell to shit. Like we've always we've had multiple times. Yes, you know, like the collapse of the Bronze Age is you know a biggie, big big biggie, big 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 biggie, biggie. biggest talk- biggie, yeah. <laughs> That as far as as far as we know, you know, there, you know, who knows, there might have been, you know, dinosaur people, dinosaur people, yes, yes, maybe there will be dinosaur people soon, and I know that they're going to be. They're already in Zuck's mecha metaverse, mechaverse, mechaverse, the mechaverse, yeah, mechanoid verse, yeah. There's already dragon people and dinosaur people. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Anything s- you can imagine, humans can find a way to pull it off. I do not find any meaning. I, I will not find any meaning within the metaverse, and I, I think it's kind of odd that he would use the word meta. Like I understand the colloquialism of meta, but when we're talking about like meta is meta would be. Don't try and be this, a company that owns that. Just but, let that be the thing that but, all the companies interact. But what with you them. have to do is yeah. you have to put something on Facebook can't own the metaverse well That's here hold, hold on hold on though <laughs> but the way what meta like what meta is like the metaverse is it's not an expanding thing that that is meta meta is right, all right, encompassing right, right, sure. it around it's something that <laughs> tunes you in yes everything can come down into it and you can observe all this stuff and have all this stuff but it's not opening it's not an opening expanding no, thing hole, it's uh holism needs to also you're be now expanding. okay with living in the grow, pod yeah. needing the bugs you, can't you don't have it. to see them you just let it be the the thing that it's going to be the so I, I, of that I, reality they say irony doesn't e- exist it's super ironic to life, call, but it's to try and have a company to and try and own the idea of a metaverse because inevitably there's going to be multiple yeah yeah verses that will be interconnected as people want them to be um you know if anything Sucks we've, we've be been in the metaverse since the uh, you know the first time well what did we call that at the the dawn of time for us humans the upper paleolithic transition mm-hmm. we've Th- been that's when we started cyborgs that's when we time. started meta is we started using each other's spreading out our uh, uh well, we use psychotechnologies. We develop tools, yeah. uh, traditions that with we people, treat which... as extensions of ourself yeah. that we embody. So, yeah, we we've been cybernetic for a long time. Yeah, and you know, so. way before cell phones, but that's definitely jumped it up to another level. Well, the shaman... now we do uh, automatically have this super upgrade to our computational power and memory on us at all times. Uh, yeah, we basically have the library of Alexandria in our pockets. Yeah, and then some, is, right? Yeah, um, and you can keep. Can, you can interact and write more. Yeah, little did little did you know the ancient uh, library of Alexandria was just filled with porn and cats. Yeah, and I I mean, this one is. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I'm sure there was some pretty choice graffiti and other raunchy texts that were probably in there. You it know? Says something though. Uh, I mean, that cats are in the lead, like actual kittens. 
are are actually in the lead. Well, that's biology figuring out how to hack other it's predators. Earth's favorite thing, I guess. I don't know. Well, because like they're, they're most, they're, they're the cutest and most fearsome furry things at once. That, well, they're the ultimate predator. Other predators don't want to eat their young because their young are so cute. Mm. Well, cuteness is actually the the infant's only survival mechanism. It's just being so that's cute. It. Other things want to take care of it. That's it. Yep. That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And cats so are the best at it. mammal mothering. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, even birds. Like, you know, like chickens will, like, you know, if a kitten gets in with their chicks and in with their eggs, they'll sit on them. Dinosaur people. They can't lactate and feed them, but they'll, you know, they'll, <laughs> right. like, like I've seen, you know, barn cats and chickens, you know, like the mama cat just like leaves her babies with the chicken and the chicken just sits on them. <laughs> and then the what mom are chickens doing with those big breasts without lactate? <laughs> it's a wonder of nature. Mm, them breasts are for eating. Well, I guess, Something I like guess. like a duck with Bill Platypus going on there. No, it's, they're just, you know, it's the way they're shaped. I think the breast is more of actually, uh, like if terms, um, like, you know, you have a breastplate that goes over your breast, keep me abreast, mm. you know, the forward moving thing. And then, you know, as things you trickle down and words trickle down, then we, you know, muscle. breasts are not boobs, but they can be sometimes. There you go. Oh, that's it. Ah, but a boob is somebody who falls for a meme out of that. A boob is somebody who's, you know, like a, a rube that falls for, uh, you know. Man, words are funny. And then there's like the booby, like the blue-footed booby. Well, why they call it a booby? Was there a guy named Booby? What? That's maybe. It was Booby that discovered it. I need to learn a, another language or two, man. English is odd. And I'd like to Booby see. the booby whisperer. Yeah. And then there's Bubby. Like if you're country folk and somebody calls you Bubby, that's like, you know, buddy. Bubby and Booby's next great adventure. Mm. And then there's Babe. I've been called Babe by like really rough, you know, tumble country folk. But like you're honored to be called Babe, and you're like, because you know, Babe is like you know a uh, sweet, you know, we one familiar thing. You know, like you mm-hmm. you call a friend Babe, a pig, you know, pig Babe, Babe the pig. Oh yeah, words are funny, man. That's like, you know, fire was an invention, but language was something else like and then learning how to write it down alphabetize it yeah it's like psychotechnology a technology of the psyche and we've had language long before the wheel actually some you know like some cultures didn't even have the wheel but they had language and they were able to tell stories Mm -hmm. And kind of know what's going on in the universe, maybe not in a perfect so they can way. Still revolve but and have revolutions and evolution, even though they didn't have the wheel. Yeah. Or if they did they have the wheel, forward. it was more of a thing to keep track of time and you know space, because like you know they, like you know the pagan wheel with the four seasons and all that stuff that that predates the you actual know, like pulling something on a wheel. That was a crazy day. That, Who was the first person to look at that? And it's like, if I make that turn upside down, put an axle think, in it, I can pull it, things. <laughs> it was some guy watching some rocks roll down a hill, boulders roll down a hill or something. It happened enough times. Finally, a guy was like, or wait ro- a minute. rolling beads in between his fingers. Just Noticing it was just, just like, maybe mm. it was in a, like silhouetted yeah. going down the hill. He's looking to his left. The sun is set in. There's just this big boulder going down the hill. It's round like a circle. It's like, that's it. Then how do I that's roll on it? Roll. And you're doing this with your beads while you're thinking about it, and you realize wheels. you can put a hole in it. So how do I put a hole in that thing? But yeah, well, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, that's, that's where they got clever. We we've got a lot of technology in our heads, and we have access to everything we need to move on to techniques, the next age. Ologies, yes. Yeah, we 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 have the tools, we have the techniques. Um, you know, we have the time. We're able to operate at much we faster speeds ever. So, like, we can do it. All we need to do now is find meaning, and we've got meaning everything. Together. And we've got yeah. everything we need to be able to do that. Yeah, this this isn't you know. And there's this thing called love. Rodeo, there's this thing know? called love that these Christs this and these Buddhas love. and these Nelson Mandelas and everyone keep and Martin Luther Kings and so on and so forth keep telling us about Robert Kennedy. People that really get love, Mother Teresa, Gandhi's, and uh, Bob Marley. Your mom that would grab you, or your friend's mom that would grab you up and whoop you like her own child. All you need Tough is love. love. Dun, da, 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 da. <laughs> That was all you need. Oh, and there's there's so much variety within love. So you know, it's a regular Baskin Robbins up in yeah. <laughs> there is. It's infinite. Yeah. All all of these emotions are wrapped up in this thing that we call love. That's well, why it's so helpful to see love well, not as an emotion. There's emotions that exist in it: bliss, serenity, peace. Well, in love, jealousy, frustration, stress. But there's also but there's actually an orientation of love. And we use the term in love. And and mostly we use it with like I'm in, in love with somebody, love. but you can be in love with a place, in love with a it's a experience. Mode of being. It's a mode. Yeah, you're in it. Yeah, it's just an existential <laughs> mode. It's the ultimate existential mode for us that can be the substratum for all of our other existential modes as we adapt as agents in the arenas that we encounter. That love allows us to be so deeply considerate. If you're unconditional when you walk into an arena, you're gonna catch all of the details that you need to pick up. You're not going to be pushing some away because you don't like the idea of them. You're just willing to love it all and, and be open to it all and bring it all in and then consider deeply to be present with, to relate with, and to find the way to reciprocally revolve together as best we can. And that's the name of the game right now for human beings to get to figure out. And it's an exciting game, and it's a celebration when you see the artist's and the their their friends and fans and family all coming together to build up these feelings that we're sharing and describing to one another that give us a deeper sense of meaning and interconnection. Like that's the good stuff, you know. Shawshank Redemption. I mean, yeah, right. You know, the end of that movie is so fucking good. I, I love that how Red realiz- realizes. This idea of hope that Andy had was actually legit. It was actionable. And something you could do by attending fully to the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can have hope and you can you can do hope too. Yes. We can be hope and we can get beyond a, like na- naive hope and just mere like expectation of belief kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Not I the think idea of faith, but the idea of faithfulness. Yeah. That, that is the real connotation of the word faith, is to be faithful to. So attending fully to the moment, holding nothing back, being our whole true selves, allows us to better adapt to all kinds of environments and situations. Well, and, and, and if it didn't, we wouldn't be here right now, because that's mm-hmm. what we've been doing as humans. Yeah, and if you don't love yourself, how do you deal with, we wouldn't be as humans. Yeah, we wouldn't have made it this far if we hadn't done that so far. Well, no, like yeah. uh, we've we've had every opportunity to wipe ourselves out. Like, come on, let's let's be real. 
and we've had the opportunity to do it for 200,000 plus years. So and we have the capacity um, to be greater stewards uh, on this planet and life than any other species that's ever existed if we could just get our act together, well, learn to get to along with one another well enough to serve well, the I think young life that is growing up now. Finding meaning and more people finding meaning and then those young people become older people with meaning and then those older people are creating the best with environments for them are, that we can. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah, just by force and, and, and not the most comfortable environments and other environments, not the best in that sense. Yeah, but we the gotta be- work together though to the do best it, in we? that for growth. For for and our progression. Growth and, yeah, yeah, for a symbiotic um relations with one another, uh for more fair, just, um, equal and well, positive and, experience of life with one another. And respectful and gracious and, mm-hmm. and yeah, this, being, being able to find being able like so this word authority has come up in my mind but like being able to find and respect authority and not the respect authority but authority like of, being uh, able to knowledge. know like you know authorities like the, of wisdom and how to be yeah like the yes, emt that prove when something happens you give them to the emt mm. and they're the authority mm-hmm. on that they're the person who's going to help mm-hmm. this and being able to recognize this because mm-hmm. if you can't recognize authority an authority of, you know like yes. an authority of yes yes um mm-hmm and that's you know that doesn't the, mean the, that uh, you blindly submit uh, well definitely to not any authority especially authority that uses force of violence to achieve its or, ends and prove its points or even one that says i am the right way you know there's yeah. a lot of authorities in that education the and resort. the intelligentsia the intelligent people the, those authorities are terrible and mm-hmm. they're i'm sorry i'm no i'm no genius and i'm no scholar or anything but listening to some of some of these high authorities of how we should be thinking and who are teaching people what to think and how to think are not what I would consider like proper authority. Like they wouldn't be the authorities on the subjects that are done. <laughs> like, you know, like when you realize you're no, smarter, you're mean. smarter than your teacher in high school on the subject. Mm. Yeah. Like stuff like that. But like, well, a little bit more than that. People too, that but, mean well, but they're trying to serve being mode with having, Trying to serve the being needs with having needs by fulfilling the having the categorization. Yeah, but then there, then there's mode. then there's the hucksters, the ones that use the big words and say the things so you follow them around and sure. do whatever. Sound and you know, oh, I'm the authority on this, and it's just like, well, no, not not really. Like what well, you say you are, but you're not making any sense to me. So why am I trusting you? Mm. It's up to an individual to be like those that. The ability to find authority and understand what it is in other people yes. and how yes. to exhibit yourself is a core fundamental um, principle that we, you know, have to have yes. in order to get through. Yes. And if you don't have it, you have a really hard time getting through life. That's it. And Buddha actually had a great way of expressing this when he said, don't believe anything just because it is popular mm-hmm. and well known. Don't believe anything just because authorities your parents, the great go wise find, religious yeah. teachers. Go find yourself. The go state find. says it's true. What, only believe in something once you have found out after thorough investigation and reflection, basically, mm-hmm. that it is good for one and all. Then accept it and live up to it. But don't believe anything outright. And that's a very, very important point. That's a very helpful way for us to be able to accurately orient ourselves in this world and to continue being able to live up to what is good and true if that is our Mm. ultimate goal which it should Mm. be because that's going to give us the most sense of meaning and belonging yeah 
so it seems that's that's what we're finding here it's worked this it's worked this far and and it's not necessarily that all these ideas that we've been discussing that have been discussed forever are you know have caused bad things it's actually the lack of properly applying these technologies that we've sure. developed over the oh, years yeah. that no, have, i mean like the institutionalization and, or, and over organization of christianity that then bifurcated and split itself into hundreds of different fragments and and argumentative you know approaches to, to saying which one is which way is the right one right right version of christianity you, you see that happen over and over and over again um but the core of the christian ideal of living up according to the ideals of this archetype of christ are revelatory and then you know everybody and true and helpful and true in a way of how to approach the world in a way that helps us be in ever higher states of realization reciprocal realization with one another we're helping each other not just understand more in the sense of realize but to create more together so we're in that co-creative coupling that relationship with life that i thou relationship so the mindfulness revolution happened here is happening right now here in the west because we're finding we're seeking a way of retrieve retrieving that revitalizing that project of self-transcendence and deepening the meaning in our lives well we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do something and i'd rather do that mm-hmm. uh, than other things um, yeah. it's kind of obvious now at this point well, we get to re-explore the idea of god we get to Lift it from the cultural baggaging and yeah, that cultural baggage that those impressions that people have of like well, the word yeah. God itself. Everyone thinks of with sense of like the Christ, uh, a certain Christian idea of expressing God as some judgmental be- guy, old guy, a guy with, with a beard, beard with yeah. a pointy finger looking down at you. The Santa Claus way of looking at God, for instance, which could be an aspect. Who, who knows? But that is also a, a really oversimplification, it feels, of something that is described so richly in the Bible and in ancient scriptures from that period of time. But, there, you know, like... If how to be in relation with it, to be loving and to see everyone as one. Yeah, and we're in an interesting place, too, because we're, we're impacted a lot by insights that were had under a polytheistic um, environment like Socrates mm-hmm. and Plato... Which and did all get the early philosopher. Well, but no, well, hold on. I, I, not even getting into that, but had the idea of gods were just big people, like they sure. were people. Yeah, they were big yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. And so there's the remnant within that's like, oh God. Yeah, well, God is the biggest yeah, person, yeah, yeah, of course. But that's well, we, we that's we, a, and we've done that. We keep oversimplifying that, yeah, the thing in yeah, order to try well, to understand making, it ourselves or, and express term, it to people making it too low of a resolution that's the problem to, under, yeah, yeah, box sometimes you have to increase the resolution sometimes that's bad you know you lose well, perspective what you're trying but, to do yeah, yeah but finding the right resolution to be at it's got to remain transcendent to us it's it's just the ever so slightly the, out of focus unknowable. from what we can understand we know it through love yeah we know it by communion with it by attending fully to this moment and given our experience of it back onto that great mystery, that great source from which we come somehow. Yep. Being in relation with a, uh, with a uh, existence as though it is in a living dance with us. And then we notice that we can indeed flow with life when we treat it that way. We tune ourselves to it that way. We give it that level of s- discipline. You know, We apply that level of self-discipline to being able to be more active 
and able agents in the world. We get to feel that increased sense of conformity with reality, that ability to flow with whatever is happening. So that deeper sense of meaning, that deeper sense of belonging, all of that comes. And, and, and again, that process of enlightenment. Yeah, so what, why wouldn't you even just try? Just you know, has no cap. Look at all these benefits. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Just do it, man. It'd be great. I promise. You like it. <laughs> just a buck oh five. Just a buck oh five. Freedom. Cost a buck oh five. That was a brilliant movie. It was. Oh, yeah. Well, it's getting late. It is. I got a dentist yeah. appointment in the morning, so. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode of Actual Eye Podcast. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. And we will see you guys next week, Wednesday at 8 p.m. EST. And join us if you're in the Pennsylvania Mechanicsburg area. We're going to be at Love Drafts October 22nd, around 4. It's going to be a festival going on and lots of music so come on out and party and thank you guys for tuning in once again talk to you soon peace peace love you guys